Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I'll tell you what's going on, Conrad. I'm feeling just freaking awesome this morning. I got up early. I pounded some coffee, had a little bit of tea, took my dog, Nikki for a nice hike. I'm ready to go, and here's the best part. When we're done with this, um, I'm going to go pull my passport out of the safe, start packing my bags because I'm heading down under. Uh, let's get it. Let's get going, man. I'm excited to talk about this week's episode because we're covering something that happened. Well, gosh, 20 years ago, uh, June 13th, 1999, right there in Baltimore. It's the great American bash and great American bash is a, is a show that has been synonymous with the NWA and world uh, world championship wrestling since the beginning. And Great American Bash 99, let's get into it. You guys drew a good house here, 11,672 fans, but there was a lot of paper. Uh, only 8,740 fans were paying, but still, it's nearly $300,000, 298,870 bucks to be exact. And it's going to get a 0.43 bar rate, uh, which the newsletters would say is just over a $2 million gross for WCW. And Baltimore is kind of synonymous with you guys as a promotion. It's hosted the great American bash in 1988, 1989, 1990, 1991. And then you would go back there for 96, 98, 99. And then of course the final great American bash in 2000. Why was Baltimore such a great city for you guys? Well, I think, you know, in, in first and foremost, the Northeast has always been a hotbed for sports entertainment, professional wrestling, whatever you want to call it. Um, not only because of the WWWF's, you know, longtime presence in the Northeast, but obviously, as you pointed out, the NWA, it was a stronghold for the NWA for a long, long time. I think part of that, you know, I wasn't there in the beginning, obviously I didn't get to WCW until 1991 or 92, whenever it was. But prior to my arrival, I think a lot of the management from the previous NWA who came over to WCW had longstanding relationships with, you know, the arena management and in the market, whether it's, you know, the arena or radio stations or newspapers or whatever it may be. Um, it just made promoting there much easier. And there wasn't, you know, kind of an indigenous stronghold of, of wrestling fans in that market. But before we go on, Conrad, I want to say when you let me know that we were going to be covering great American bash 1999, my first reaction was, really, we have to do something from 1999 because every time we do, I just want to throw up in my mouth. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not, it's, I, it's, it's not my favorite, you know, period, uh, in terms of my relationship with WCW. But after going back and reviewing the show, I've got to say, I am jacked to dig into this and I can't wait to hear what some of the criticisms from the various, you know, provocateurs of wrestling commentary, uh, had to say about this, because I, I feel very strongly about it. I think it's going to be a fun show to go, go through. Talk about 98 versus 99. This is part of the show that I enjoy probably the most. I know we like to debate, you know, the, the in-ring action and, um, the creative, but that's all sort of opinions and you really dig deep into facts and just the facts of business are sort of what makes this show a little different than some of the other podcasts that I do. So let's look at say June of 98 versus June of 99. 
Your average attendance in June of 98 is 8,579 fans. A year later, looks like the honeymoon's over. June of 99 is 5,874 fans. So attendance is down 31.5%. But here's what's interesting. WCW kept ticket prices so low for so long that by the time they finally made an increase, fans were willing to pay. So your average gate in June of 98 is 135 grand. And even with 31.5% fewer people attending, your average gate in June of 99 is 146 grand. So revenues are up 8.1%, in spite of the fact that there are fewer butts in seats. Talk to me about the ticket pricing strategy and how that evolved through your tenure at WCW. I was pretty much against raising ticket prices at any point. I, I, I much preferred to increase attendance to affect revenue as opposed to raising the price because I firmly believe that as I do now that, you know, wrestling, sports entertainment, again, whatever you want to call it, I, I, I kind of refer to both now. Um, you know, it's a family event, you know, and so many sports, live events of any kind, whether it's a concert or sports or whatever, Disney on ice, you name it, are so expensive. They're almost cost prohibitive for the average American family. So I was really reluctant to raise prices to affect revenue. The reality is in by this time in June of 1999, we were in peak um, EBITDA mania in, in Turner Broadcasting, meaning the bottom line was so critically important. And it always is in any business. I'm not suggesting it shouldn't be or it never was. But in the midst of merger mania and everybody, you know, working – when I say everybody, I'm talking about senior executives who had lots of stock options because they were the ones that were going to be most dramatically affected by the, the valuation of Turner Broadcasting at the, at the close of the merger or acquisition would be more appropriate uh, or the AOL Time Warner merger, I should say, that they were, they were squeezing us to, you know – do everything possible to raise revenues. On top of the fact, as we've discussed many times, Thunder, which was a Ted Turner mandate, landed on my lap. And unlike Nitro or what would be a traditional um, business arrangement between a producer like WCW and a network like TBS, whereby the network would pay for or to some large extent offset the cost of at least production, that wasn't the case. And I was forced to deliver a two-hour primetime show on TBS and figure out how to pay for it myself. So that's where a, a lot of the price um, increase came from, is we just had to figure out the most creative ways we could to do that. Well, it's interesting that the, the pricing strategy works, I mean, really to offset uh, the lack of attendance. I mean, you, you go from selling out roughly 37% of your house shows to only selling out like 6% of your house shows, but revenues stay intact. So uh, a good strategy. Tempor te temporarily though, Conrad, I think not to interrupt you and I'm sorry to do that, but I mean, it's a good, it was a good temporary fix. It didn't, it didn't address the real problem. You know, great. We could camouflage and, you know, of course the finance, you know, Department of Turner Broadcasting love it. You know, Time Warner loved it. Oh, look, revenues are up. Oh, great. It's working to a degree uh, be, because that's all they cared about was the bottom line. But when you look at the real um, challenges that we had, it, it didn't, you know, great. 
revenues are up, that's a very temporary fix. If, if, if the interest in your product is deteriorating, even though you may in the short term be able to raise prices and camouflage that, as long as that audience keeps deteriorating, it's a short-term solution. And that's what that was. Well, there, there needs to be a solution for ratings. Those are down 18% year over year in June of 98, you're averaging a four come June of 99, you're averaging a 3.2. Uh, let's talk about some news and notes sort of behind the scenes. It was reported that Kevin Nash was on the May 14th episode of the tonight show, and he's really replacing Goldberg, uh, who was supposed to be there on the 12th, but he couldn't make it because of some injuries. So you guys managed to slide Nash in there a couple of days later. Talk to me about the relationship with the tonight show and how these guys were selected. Like, um, a Kevin Nash or a Goldberg, how is it decided? Hey, who's going to go represent us here on the tonight show? And is it something where they call you guys and say, Hey, we need a guest. Can you send someone on this day? Are you guys strategically trying to plan that? Hey, where can we, you know, send them to maximize the dollars either for a live event or a big show that we need to promote on TV or maybe just a pay-per-view. Well, it was always to build up a pay-per-view or if we were pushing something very specific on Nitro and we were treating it almost like a pay-per-view, we would, you know, take advantage of the opportunity that I had developed with NBC. I, I had a great relationship with a with a guy there by the name of Gary Considine. We we became good friends. Gary was the executive producer, showrunner in charge of the Tonight Show with Jay Leno. And we all know that the history there, but we maintained our relationship. Gary Considine was you know, very um, instrumental in getting us the NBA um, replacement opportunity that never happened because of the brain trust at, at Turner Broadcasting at the time. Uh, but we maintained that relationship. And whenever I had something that I was excited about or felt the need to promote, um, Gary and I, Gary Constant and I were in pretty much regular contact at least once every week or two weeks. And I could simply give Gary a call and say, hey, look, this is what I've got going on. I, the suggestion would be for me and as, in terms of who was the guest. You know, there was a limit. You know, I couldn't put on somebody that didn't have a lot of um, uh, Q, if you know what that means. If you don't know what Q ratings are, Q means it's somebody that didn't have a lot of mainstream, you know, broad audience recognition. Kevin certainly did. Goldberg certainly did. Hogan certainly did. You know, Bret Hart certainly did. You know, Savage and so forth. But it's not like I could have brought in, you know, Mikey Whipwreck <laughs> and, and and tried to you know promote his big match with Van Hammer coming up on this pay per view. Um, but so it was basically my suggestion, and Gary would accommodate. Uh, NBC would accommodate as as best they could. It's fascinating to me that you guys had such a mainstream hookup there. With NBC, um, they're going to show a video of Bret Hart attacking Goldberg and Nash refers to Bret Hart as being high maintenance and a whiner who doesn't want to work for our federation. So he challenges him to a match at the tonight show. Uh, he also has a story about how he got the name of big sexy sort of crediting it to a conversation he had with his wife, which is basically, uh, the same story that stone cold would say about how he got that moniker from his wife instead of you know, the ringmaster chat me up about, um, the decision to sort of run angles there, uh, on the show. And do you think Jay in the end, cause th this was a move that was criticized when you put Jay in the ring, but it's a, it's a big opportunity to have such a mainstream audience. 
but it does feel like sometimes late night hosts and, and quote unquote mainstream folks could talk about wrestling or presented in more of a tongue in cheek. Ha ha. Isn't this all silly kind of thing? That's true. There's no doubt that that's true. One of my, one of the biggest uh, concerns I had when Hulk Hogan and I first showed up on the tonight show at NBC, when we took over the set and threw Jay off the set and Kevin Eubanks and, you know, created all that havoc to set up Sturgis. I think, what was that? 97 or 98. Um, one of the biggest concerns I had is in, in laying that out with Jay Leno himself and Gary and some of the, you know, the, the production staff was that we have to treat it seriously. It's okay to have fun with it after the fact, but going into it, if we, you know, if we treat it like, Hey, Hey, ha ha, he go, oh, this is kind of fun shtick comedy that then it will definitely hurt us. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why, and we've talked about this, I think in the past, when, when I first sat down with Jay Leno and Gary Considine and they said, Hey, you know, this is Jay. Hey, Hey, what, what do you want to do? I'll do anything. <laughs> and I went, uh, anything Did I just hear you say anything? Cause that opens up a whole lot of doors for me. And he was so game. And when I laid everything out to him about us coming down, and, and honestly, I shot for the moon when when I set this up because I figured, well, they may say no or maybe can we tone this down or tone that down. But I wanted to go for the gusto and work my way backwards. I didn't want to start out halfway and try to work to, towards the goal. So I said, this is what we want to do, Jay. We're going to come down and we're going to throw you off your own set. We're going to make it look like we're going to kick your ass. Kevin Eubanks is going to jump out of the orchestra pit and 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 get involved. But you can't tell anybody. You can't tell your security people. You can't tell your stage managers. You can't tell anybody that is going to get caught on camera busting out laughing because that's the nature of that show. People go to that show, the, you know, the the live taping of the tonight show expecting that everything they see is going to be comedy and a gag. So you could literally go out there and bite the head off a chicken and they will, they'll think it's a joke. Right. And, and, and they'll laugh even though it's disgusting. Right. But you know, they agreed to that. And that was my biggest concern because late night TV can more or less stigmatize you that way and do damage to your core audience. But here's the logic. All right. And everything I think everything in life is about risk and reward. You know, you, 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 getting out of bed in the morning is a risk, but there's obviously reward for doing so, hopefully, for most people. But there is a risk and reward analysis that, you know, you kind of go through with everything. And the risk, you know, here is, yes, it's late night. Jay Leto's certainly not an athlete. Nobody, you know, the hardcore wrestling fan or even the passive wrestling fan isn't really going to take this very seriously. That is a risk. And it can either temporarily or perhaps in the long run, if you're not careful, it can have an adverse effect on your audience, no doubt. Here's the reward. You're now exposing your product and your characters to an entirely new audience that most likely doesn't already watch your product. And that's how you grow an audience. Now, I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm not saying it's not without risk, but ultimately the reward pretty much dominates the equation. And, and I think that's been true, you know, for 20 or 30 years. Vince McMahon did the same thing, you know, early WrestleManias with Cindy Lauper and Liberace. And now granted, they didn't always get involved in, in matches, but there were a lot of celebrities who, you know, Donald Trump, you know, 
there are a lot of celebrities who have. And there's always that risk, but the upside generally outweighs it. Let's keep it moving here. Uh, the May 17th show, Leno is going to be running down Hart to prepare the audience for Hart's appearance as a run-in from the audience to accept this challenge on May 18th for a May 24th match, an appearance that was also plugged on Nitro the previous night. And this would be built up on Nitro the next week to take place in a wrestling ring set up in a parking lot at the Tonight Show in Burbank. Nash never explained why he was making the challenge and why Goldberg wasn't there, but he offered 250 grand if Hart could beat him. Uh, this is all directly from the observer quote. Jay Leno was laughing all the way through this to make sure nobody took any of this seriously and laughed, especially hard at the idea that Goldberg was actually injured when Leno brought up, bringing the 250,000 in cash for the match. Nash balked and said, he's br he'd bring a cashier's check, which made Nash look bad. Uh, of course, we know that Brett's appearance on the 24th for this match would wind up being canceled, uh, because his brother Owen tragically passed away the night before at the over the edge pay-per-view. You've told the story about making that call and having a conversation with Brett when you got the unfortunate news. Talk to me a little bit about, um, what the plan was supposed to be, because obviously, you know, there was no payoff here. No, there, there was no payoff. And it, look, there specific details on what the match was supposed to be like and what the finish was supposed to be like. I'd be making shit up um, like often people do in these situations. And I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that to our listeners. I can't tell you what the finish was going to be and where the story was going to go. This was a promotional opportunity. It was a, a way, as we just discussed, to build an awareness of our product in an audience, in a, in a day part, or in this case, night part, that we don't otherwise really have access to. So I um, can't really tell you, you know, I don't want to make anything up. We okay. just had to shift gears in the middle of the stream. In terms of, you know, Dave's critique of Jay, you know, not taking it seriously uh, and laughing and joking, if it happened, it was a valid critique. I'm not so sure, you know, Dave wouldn't understand this because he doesn't really understand the wrestling business uh, as much as he thinks he does. But again, going back to what we talked about earlier, yeah, there's a little bit of a risk there, but the reward is, is way greater. I think our consistent presence on NBC was a very valuable thing. And keep in mind, you know, the tonight show's not a, a, a wrestling show. We weren't going to turn it into, you know, a serious intense kind of an opportunity every single time that we took advantage of it. So, um, you know, I'll take the criticism of, of Jay, you know, treating it too lightly or, you know, possibly making Kevin look bad because he said he was going to bring a cashier's check. I, I think that's kind of uh, nitpicking, but whatever, everybody's entitled to their opportunity or their opinion. I should say, let's keep it moving here because Brett is on Larry King live. And he says, there's a distinct difference in the class between one company and the other. For example, when I found out about this tragedy, I was met at the airport in Los Angeles by Eric Bischoff and he immediately chartered an airplane at the company's expense and flew me back. He told me, and it was so kind. I've never had any promoter say this to me. He said, take all the time you need and we'll be waiting for you when you come back. It's situations like that, that are kind of unheard of in that situation. I do want Eric Bischoff and the people at WCW to know that I really do appreciate it. My family appreciates it. That's kind of nice to hear Eric, Eric Bischoff being spoken about favorably by 
Bret Hart when that has not always been the case. Um, that is sort of unusual in wrestling for someone to come out and say, take all the time you need. I guess. I don't know. I, I, I had never been in that position myself, nor was I in you know, proximity to it involving anyone else. So I, I don't know what was unusual or not. Um, it just, you know, it was, it, it was the right thing to do under the circumstances. Brett was devastated when I met him at the airport as, as one might expect. He had heard the news actually, um, on the plane, uh, somehow somebody in Canada, I don't know if it was a member of his family or, or whatever, but somebody was able to, to get a hold of the airlines because they knew that Brett was in the air and the air traffic control actually communicated the news to the pilots on board that plane. And I was, you know, I, I was, I don't want to say nervous, but I was certainly apprehensive about being the one to break the news to Brett once he walked off that plane. And it was a late flight. You know, I remember it being like 10 or 1030 at night. So the airport at LAX wasn't really full. And I got there early because I didn't want to miss miss the flight for any reason. And I remember just sitting there dreading, you know, having because I've never been in that position before, dreading half dreading having to tell him. And it was apparent to me as soon as he walked off the plane that he already knew. And I was somewhat relieved personally, but still you could by the look on his face, I was I was moved emotionally by it as anybody would be. Nothing unusual about that. But it, yeah just seemed to be the right thing to do. Let's talk about a report that uh, made the observer. And this is, um, this is something I know you're going to want to take your time with. Eric Bischoff told some of the wrestlers on May 17th before nitro that they were going to focus the company around 10 wrestlers who weren't named, but are believed to be Hulk Hogan, diamond Dallas page, Randy Savage, Rick Flair, Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, sting, Bret Hart, Roddy Piper, and Goldberg. All but Goldberg are over 40 years old. And everyone else is going to have to wait for their push. This is diametrically different from what just about everyone following the situation believes is the way to cure the problem. If such a cure exists Bischoff in a lengthy interview that aired on the first hour of nitro, that was largely meant as a shoot and amazingly admitted, uh, while it's obvious, it's still amazing that it was admitted because I've never seen a wrestling company in history go on its television in the midst of a war, even a one-sided war, and practically admit to being on top and blowing it and now being number two, the truth of the current situation. And he talked about the plan to bring things back, and the plan is to build everything around the old guys. In particular, most of the 10 wrestlers to be focused around don't work house shows because they have limited date deals. So the house shows will continue to consist of two or three of the main event guys, Flair, Page, and sometimes Goldberg or Sting, and being filled in with guys like Benoit, Malenko, Saturn, Raven, Mysterio, and Conan, who aren't going to get serious pushes. And then they're being counted on to go on the road and in semi-main events and make people want to see those live events. It is believed Bischoff talked with Hogan, who brought him to this conclusion, that those are the guys who are the money players and nobody else can draw money. At this point, only a few of those 10 still mean much because they've all had their knees clipped so many times. Bischoff even apparently told one of the second group wrestlers, if not more, that they had to try to push the younger guys, but the ratings had fallen and it didn't work. Everyone was trying to figure out when the period was where they tried to push those younger guys. Besides, if they did try to push the younger guys now, it would fail miserably for the short run because they've all been buried for so long. But the idea is to have the patience to get them over 
and that that lack of patience and worrying about Tuesdays is now the downfall and the guarantee that things won't change substantially in the foreseeable future. So it is sort of a Meltzer paints a, a damned if you do, damned if you don't picture where, hey, this is probably the direction you need to take, but it won't work in the short term and things look bleak. You feel the need to pull the nose up. So you go with what you know has worked in the past. And he credits Hogan with that idea. I guess <laughs> let's sort of break this down step by step. Do you remember saying, hey, we're going to build it around 10 guys? Do I remember specifically that meeting and having that conversation? No. But again, this is, and you, I mean, you covered a lot of ground there. So it's impossible yes. for me to respond to all of it accurately. But look, were we in a, were we in a tough situation where I had to communicate to the talent and, and to the staff, not just to the talent that, you know, we've got to come up with a strategy that we know is going to work. Sure. You know, I'll take his recollection of it. If I did it on an interview on Nitro, then, you know, it's public record. and We can all go back and watch it and figure out what the hell I said. But again, as Dave so often does, is he weaves his own agenda, which is anti-Hogan, anti-WCW, clearly anti-Eric Bischoff. He weaves so much of his own personal inadequacies into his commentary about a given situation, some of it being true, some of it just Dave having, you know, adequacy issues and feeling the need to project his agenda. You know, it, it's, you know, it's hard for me to not get defensive about certain things like this here. here you know, we're going to, we're just about to talk about, you know, the June 13th, 1999 pay-per-view where Dave is talking about how I, re, you know, I'm just not going to give young guys their push. We're going to talk about the Ray Mysterio Conan match um, here in just a few moments. We're going to, you know, we can talk long and hard about Chris Jericho, Chris, Dean Malenko, Chris Benoit, all these young guys who are really ascending in their careers at this point, And as a result of it, ended up being top stars in WWE. I mean, and in Jericho's case, now in AEW, you know, I mean, it's one thing to say, oh, he's not pushing young guys. It's another thing to go back and say, okay, let's look at what happened between 1997 and 2000. Where did these guys that have become household names fucking come from? Mm. They didn't pop out of the goddamn ground, right? They didn't get dropped off from a freaking spaceship. They got their push. They got exposure. Rey Mysterio especially is is a prime example as well as Chris Jericho and others that we can point to during this window of time where presumably I wasn't giving, you know, the young guys their push. The only other comment that I want to make while I've got my, you know, my fists up ready to throw a punch is, you know, and all of this strategy came from Hulk Hogan. Dave Meltzer's a fucking putz. He has no idea what he was talking about then, as he has no idea for the most part, what he's talking about now when it comes to, this type of speculation and agenda driven tripe. And that's all it is. Dang, you gotta get me all riled up first thing in the morning. <laughs> Hate it. I go into these things. I'm I say to myself, honest to gosh, it it's like when I go, have to go into a crowded restaurant or a, you know, a shopping mall or an airport, because I'm not a really big fan of crowds and noise. I'm just not. And if I don't prepare myself 
and talk to myself for about 15 minutes before I do it, it's easy for me to, you know, get to the point where I don't want to be there anymore. And I tell myself every time I do this show, like 15 minutes before I drink my coffee, I have my cup of tea, I take my dog for a hike, I stretch out a little bit, I look at my notes, I have kind of a, a, an agenda. And at the very end of that agenda of list of things that I need to do and not do, right there at the end of that is don't get pissed off about stupid ass Dave Meltzer comments because there's too many of them. They don't really mean anything. And I get my, my blood pressure goes up. I start to break a fucking cold sweat. And I don't want to do it anymore. So there, I'm not going to get mad. I'm cool with it now. Man, Dave's a, Dave's a genius. He's he he is he is the he is the Walter Cronkite of sports entertainment. There is nobody walking the face of the earth that knows more about the wrestling business. Not Vince McMahon. Not Eric Bischoff. You know, and, and nobody. It is really Dave Meltzer. He is the center of knowledge in the sports entertainment professional wrestling universe. And we should all bow down to Dave Meltzer because he's short and he needs it. God damn. Mark the time and date. We finally agree on something, man. That's great. Let's keep (laughs) it going here. Um, Charles Robinson makes the observer. Uh, it's written that he suffered a bruised esophagus and a possible collapsed lung on the May 17th nitro taking Randy Savage's big elbow finisher off the top. Meltzer would say the bump is harder to take now because Savage is overly protective of his bad knee, which means the elbow lands with more force than ever before. And Robinson is only about 145 pounds and he doesn't have the thick chest that most of the wrestlers do who take the move. He's taken to the hospital after the match. And this is the same elbow that would break a couple of ribs on diamond Dallas page. Who's not 145 pounds. When do you remember first hearing, God damn, Randy Savage is laying these fucking elbows in. Well, he's always had a history of laying them, or he always had, I should say, correct me. He always had an, uh, a history of being a little stiff on the finish. You know, um, it wasn't new, but it was getting, I think as Randy, you know, got a little older, got a little heavier, got a little slower, got a little less athletic towards the end of his career. It became a little bit more of a pronounced problem, but he had always been, you know, from what I've heard, I never took one, so I can't speak from experience, but I remember, you know, everybody that knew they were going to have to take one going, oh, really? <laughs> do, do we have to do that? <laughs> so it, it wasn't unusual, but certainly, in a, look, I, I can tell you from personal experience, um, when you're, I don't care if you're thick chested, if you're, you know, a bodybuilder, whatever, um, I don't care if you're 250 pounds. If you're not used to taking bumps, if you're not, if your body isn't conditioned to absorbing impact on a nightly basis, daily basis over an extended period of time, because it's a different kind of conditioning. Um, if you're not used to it, I don't care how big you are, you, you're going to get hurt. And, and certainly that is exacerbated when you're 145 or 150 pounds and you're a guy that's not used to taking bumps. Um, it's, it's hard on your body. I think that's one of the reasons just to kind of extend that thought. And I, I, I began noticing this even when I was in the AWA, when I was still, you know, learning on the job in every way, you know, it was the, the guys who always got hurt or got hurt consistently are the guys that didn't work consistently. The guys that were out there working five, six, seven days a week, they were always, you know, in the ring. They were you know, constantly, 
you know, taking bumps. They rarely got hurt. And it kind of flew in the face of logic to me. It's like, well, God, if you do something that's dangerous six times a week, aren't you more likely to get hurt than somebody that only does it twice a week? And as logical as that sounds to someone who's never done it for a living, um, like I was, um, it actually starts to make sense when when you understand the kind of conditioning that, that occurs when you when you do take bumps all the time. So I, it was a double-edged sword. Randy was getting heavier, and I don't mean just heavier weight-wise, but I mean he was getting heavier with that elbow for a lot of reasons, uh, probably including the knee issue. That doesn't surprise me. I would probably have to agree with that. Um, but also uh, the the fact that somebody that you know shouldn't have been taking that bump took it is probably what exacerbated it. Let's talk about Jesse Ventura. Um, on the May 31st Nitro, you make some interesting comments about Jesse Ventura. Tony mentions that you were on Larry King Live uh, the prior week, and you said Jesse Ventura is a joke and that you think people will see through Jesse Ventura because he talks out of both sides of his mouth, and that's what's made him a good politician, a perfect politician, in fact. And you say whatever happens to get him the most amount of press at any opportunity is what he's going to pitch anything that benefits Jesse. He'll be out there trying to talk to anybody who will listen to him. So he's in a good spot and quote, here's a guy that made a bigger career talking about the fact that he used to be a wrestler than he ever made actually being a wrestler. I mean, by today's standards, he'd be lucky to be a mid card player, but according to Jesse, he was the greatest thing that ever happened to the wrestling industry in the minds of the media. He's an expert. You've often um, been, uh, credited with being the guy who fired Jesse Ventura. What do you remember about your little diatribe here? Obviously this comes up because Jesse has just been very successful in Minnesota politics and made some headlines. I mean, I mean, I obviously remember doing the interview and I believe the interview came about as a result of Owen's passing. I, I'm pretty sure that's accurate, but Perhaps not. We'll have to go back and look at that because I, I do believe I was only on Larry King, I think, once um, in terms of my comments. Look, part of that was me in character. Part of that was me speaking on a personal, you know, from a personal perspective, you know, making it big in Minnesota politics is almost laughable. If, if you look at politics in Minnesota. Um, but. Here, I want to button this up on Jesse. I respect Jesse Ventura. I may not agree with a lot of the things that he's said or that maybe even he says, but Jesse clearly has gone on to parlay in an amazing life, an interesting career, incredible opportunities as a result of his, his time in professional wrestling. And I, and I respect that. So for me to go back and kind of peel the scabs off old, old wounds and things like that is kind of living in the past and negative. So I'm just not going to do it, but suffice to say, to answer your question as best I can, um, not remembering exactly what I said or why I said it, but in the context of doing that interview, part of me was in character. Part of me was trying to, you know, I wrote the book controversy creates cash. Oftentimes when you saw me on camera, uh, whether it was in a Larry King interview or on, or anywhere else, first and foremost, it was about my business and how best to serve my business, not necessarily how best to serve my own personal thoughts and agenda. 
if that sounds like a cop out, it probably is. But that's my answer, and I'm sticking to it. Uh, later in the show, you also said that WCW isn't the number one company company anymore. And you knew that this is due to some mistakes that you made, including some talent decisions. And you said you wouldn't go into detail, but you did say that WCW has the best roster of big name wrestlers ever under one roof. And, uh, that you hadn't been at the announce table recently, but you had noticed how much fun it is to be in the arena during the commercial breaks because the nitro girls dance and, uh, Heenan said the breaks are more entertaining than the matches, uh, later in the show. Uh, the show, they showed Savage partying with three women in his limo and Medusa screams as two trucks block their limo against the arena wall. Uh, Nash then got out of a septic truck and brought a hose to the limo's sunroof and poured a brown substance into the limo. And it was uh, awkwardly post-produced since the limo was standing still on a wide shot and the inside camera is showing the limo moving. Savage and the women eventually escape the limo and are covered in this brown water. And they curse Nash and gag. Of course, this is team madness. It's Medusa, Savage's girlfriend at the time, gorgeous George, who I believe's real name is Stephanie Bellers, and Miss Madness, who'd go on to become Molly Holly in WWE. Uh, this feels very Vince Russo-like, but this is pre-Russo. Uh, this is a fun question to ask, because I don't know when I'll get to ask it again. Who booked this shit? Oh, who booked this shit? Isn't that funny? <laughs> Good one, Conrad. You're on your game. <laughs> you know, that would have been, you know, there was probably a combination of Kevin Nash, uh, myself, uh, Kevin. I think Kevin was really managing a lot of the creative at this point. I'm pretty sure he was. Uh, I don't think it was any one person's idea. It was probably a group of us passed the idea around and kind of tweaked it and spun it up a little bit where it needed to be spun up in terms of it being, you know, a Russo like idea, you know, go back and look at a lot of the crazy shit that we did backstage. Um, this isn't the first time we did crazy shit backstage. Um, we'll, we'll see stuff, you know, here on this pay-per-view coming up with attack dogs that had never been done before backstage too. I don't think anybody would say that was Russo like stuff. So, it wasn't unusual for us to do some over-the-top shit backstage, no pun intended, because it worked. You know, it, it, it had been working for a number of years. It's one of the reasons Nitro became successful when it did. It's because we opened up the backstage area uh, as part of our ring, meaning we would let stories develop somewhere outside of the confines of an 18 by 18 or a 20 by 20 foot ring in WWE's case and make the whole arena our stage and sometimes outside of the arena. I don't think it was anything new or unusual. How do you go about pitching Macho Man on being covered in shit? You know, I was th <laughs> I was thinking about that as I was watching this, you know, to review with you. And you know, for all the all the flack, I almost said all the crap, but all the flack that guys like Randy and Hulk and, and others would get for not wanting to do jobs and putting themselves in a bad position. You know, Roddy Piper included everybody. Randy was such, not only in this scene backstage, but, you know, as we'll see in this pay-per-view, Randy was a, he was a very generous guy. You know, the challenge was 
and, and this was almost always the case with me, whether it's Ric Flair, Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage, Roddy Piper, you know, you name it when it comes to really senior guys who were protective of their characters as they were trained to be, you know, in some cases, in Rick's case, probably 20 or 25 years in, in the business at this point for him, they were trained to protect themselves. They were trained to protect their characters. They, they came up in a dog eat dog kind of environment. It was their instinct in their nature. Um, but for the most part, all you had to, all I had to do was explain where it goes from here. And it's one of the things, you know, I'll never forget, you know, whenever I, when I was working with Russo and trying to make it work, he, you know, Russo would come up with these really, you know, crazy big moments. And he was good at that. I mean, he could create a crazy, you know, intense and all kinds of stuff happening moment. And some of it might even actually feel like it's drawing heat. But if you, if you really wanted to shut them down, all you would have to say is, okay. And then what, where does it go from here? And then it was like deer in the fucking headlights. There's nothing. And I learned that, you know, even before working with Russo, that with guys like Randy and Piper and Flair and Hogan and others, you know, if you had something like, for example, Randy getting covered in sewage that you felt really strongly about that would generate interest in what you were going to do, of course he's going to look at you like, what the fuck? Why would I do that? And then if you had the answer to that, if you explained where the story went and it was logical, you had no problem. The only time you had problems with people is when you couldn't tell them where it went from here. You're asking them to do something way over the top, you know, in their minds, potentially dangerous or damaging to their character or their position. And if you had no answer as to why they should do it, that made any amount of sense, chances are they'd put up a fight. But if you did have an answer and you, and really what that amounted to is that you had thought it through. You weren't just going out there in hot shotting angles. And by the way, I'm not suggesting I never did that because I have, but for the most part, if you have an angle and you have a story, an arc, whatever you want to call it, um, and it makes sense and it has an ending that sounds exciting and somewhat logical, most of these guys would do just about anything you ask them to. And Randy would be at the top of that list as we saw here. It feels like you did anything Randy asked though, because we see uh, gorgeous George booked on TV and there's, we don't know a lot about her as fans, but we've all heard the rumor and innuendo. How did gorgeous George get a deal with WCW through Randy? Not going to, not going to deny it or, or, you know, sidestep that Randy was really excited about her. He felt that she, like she could get over. And by the way, he was right. She had some incredible matches that you and I have covered in the past where, where that she got involved in and she did a, a, a hell of a job. So it wasn't just, you know, a personal favor for personal reasons on Randy's part. He really believed she could get over. And it's, I think if you look, especially at this pay-per-view we're going to cover, Randy was hurting, you know, Randy was not a hundred percent. Randy was smart enough to know that if he had enough camouflage around him, he could do a better job kind of covering you know, his personal uh, injuries and, and the limitations he was experiencing at that time as a result of them. So it wasn't just, you know, here's my squeeze. 
you know, I want to travel on a road with her. I want her to be at the pay-per-views in my hotel room with me, so give her a job. It wasn't that. That's what certain people will have you believe. That's what certain cynics will want to believe. That's what they'll advocate, you know, as part of their agenda. But it wasn't necessarily true. He he thought she she could get over. And oh, by the way, same thing true for Miss Madness. And we'll talk about that in a match. I don't want to spill the beans here because we're going to cover it. But he was right about her too. And and you'll if you go back and watch this pay per view in the WWE Network, you don't have to take my word for it. You'll see for yourself. He was right about her too. I think with Medusa. That was a level of comfort. You know, he had worked with her before. He knew what she was capable of. She had more experience than either, you know, Gorgeous George or Miss Badness, a.k.a. Molly Holly at that time. And he, he, he needed somebody there that he could depend on. And Medusa was it. Um, she's, uh, as Bruce Pritchard would say, uh, and I'm talking about Stephanie Bellers, gorgeous George, she's all the way live. Um, there's lots of stories that you would hear from guys who were around in the locker rooms in the, in the eighties that macho man was pretty, uh, protective, I guess we'll say that maybe that's the right phrase of miss Elizabeth. Did you see any of that, um, obsessiveness? With his relationship with Cordis George or not so much? I, not only not so much, but absolutely not. You know, and, and that's one of the things that even as you and I are talking about this today, and I'm trying to go back and, you know, remember, you know, what their relationship was like and what his motivations were. I wasn't convinced that their relationship was anything other than yeah. convenience, a.k.a. fuck buddies. Um I didn't get the sense that there was a lot of real strong personal attachment there. That doesn't mean there wasn't, by the way, because I wasn't around them outside of the building. I didn't hang out with them. I didn't talk to either one of them, you know, unless I was talking to Randy about business on the phone during the week. You know, I, I didn't spend any personal time with them. So I could be absolutely wrong about this. But it wasn't apparent to me when I was around them that their relationship was anything other than slightly more than professional. Uh, Wade Keller would report sources close to Hulk Hogan say the reason he isn't making a play for the booking position is because he realizes that the other wrestlers don't like him or Bischoff. Hogan has gotten sick of the constant criticism that goes along with the job and has decided to let Nash deal with the heat for a while. But of course, Hogan's going to continue to look out for his own material. Uh, this is Wade Keller saying it, not Dave Meltzer. Is this the next verse same as the first, or is it okay because Wade says it? No, it's wrong. I mean, it's first of all, anybody that really knows Hulk Hogan, clearly Wade Keller didn't talk to Hulk Hogan about this. He's making shit up at the time just for the same reasons Dave Meltzer did, to make himself sound to his readers that he has inside information or insight and knowledge into something that he knows absolutely nothing about. Here's the truth. And anybody that has ever worked with Hulk Hogan will tell you this. Can I freestyle a guess? I've only hung out with him a handful of times, but I think I can guess what you're about to say. Go ahead. Take a whack. Hulk Hogan has no interest in booking shit for everybody else. He has no, he has no interest in doing anything that requires more of his time than showing up and doing what he loves to do, which is work in the ring. 
He had, are you kidding me? Hey, Hulk, I'm going to give you the, here's the book. You know, we're going to, we're going to make you the head writer, head book or whatever you want to call it. Come on into Atlanta. You know, we're going to do TV Monday and then we're going to fly right back to Atlanta. And then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, we're going to work on booking. And then you get to go home Friday and then I'll see you Monday again. And we're going to start this process all over. Anybody that has worked with Hulk Hogan over the last 30 years would fucking laugh at that. Yeah. As I'm laughing inside about those comments that Wade Keller made. I like Wade Keller. I respect Wade Keller now. We're all different people. We've all grown, well, with the exception of Dave Meltzer. We've all grown. We've all become smarter, wiser, more sophisticated, and somewhat professional in our approach to things. Wade Keller is no different. I read Wade Keller now. I have a lot of respect for what I read in in, in Keller's articles and, and online. That being said, during this time, he was clearly just pulling this out of his ass to make himself sound like he knew something he didn't. All righty. Let's keep it moving here. Uh, Wade's also going to report some lower card WCW wrestlers who also work indie shows were making 60 grand a year for being on call for WCW without being used much. Lash LaRue, who works mostly TV tapings and a lot of house shows, is reportedly only making $35,000 a year. When you see a report like that, make a newsletter, whether it's the Torch or the Observer, and they're quoting contract amounts. Uh, does this annoy you with the front office or do you assume this is the boys back channeling stuff, trying to negotiate some sort of raise or does it just water off a duck's back for you? Um, it's kind of all of the above. It's very frustrating on the one hand that that kind of personal information leaked out into the public for whatever reason, you know, you've referred me in the past to, you know, court documents that were leaked to the public. Well, that's kind of unavoidable, right? That's one of the reasons why people like to try to avoid depositions and discovery because things that you would prefer stay private, whether it's proprietary information or in this case, contractual information that affects many others. you like to kind of keep that stuff as quiet as you can so that people can't use it against you at some point or misinterpret it or whatever. So yeah, it's obviously very frustrating when that gets out there. In terms of the motivation, you know, you can only speculate, you know, who leaked it, why, if it wasn't as a result of a court action, who leaked it, why they leaked it, who they leaked it to, what their motivation was. That's just all guesswork. I try as, as much as it irritated the hell out of me, I tried not to think about it any more than I had to because it, you could get wound up and, and drive yourself crazy with it. Um, and once you kind of recognize that, then you you're almost forced to let it roll off your back. There's only certain things you can do to inspire, force, um, encourage ethical professional behavior. Certain people are not going to be ethical people. Certain people aren't going to be professionals, especially those people who don't feel like they're getting their shot. Now, I'm not suggesting Lash LaRue did or didn't feel like he was getting his shot, but you know, you've got a guy that's making 35, 45 grand a year. He sees people around him, you know, making six figures. Mm, I'm pretty sure after a while he's going to do whatever he can do to change his state. And if leaking information, you know, if he's got an agenda is part of that, then, you know, it happens. But there's only so much you can do about it. So there's only so much you should try to worry about it. Or I should, I should say. One of the other things that makes the observer is, uh, 
something I'd never heard before. WCW is planning on doing its own kickboxing pay-per-view headlined by Dennis Alexio versus Rick Rufus. By the way, the last kickboxing show on May 14th with Don, the dragon Wilson as the big draw did roughly 6,000 buys nationwide or a 0.016 buy rate. I don't think we ever saw a WCW kickboxing show. Was it discussed to the best of your recollection? There was a period of time when um, there was a gentleman by the name of Joe Corley, who is still in Atlanta and is still a friend of mine. Uh, Joe Corley, I had known Joe, Joe Corley going back to the late 70s. Uh, Joe Corley was the promoter for a, a massive martial arts tournament, karate tournament called the Battle of Atlanta. And for many, many years, it was like the Super Bowl of karate tournaments from around the world. If, if, if you were a black belt division champion at the Battle of Atlanta, you, you, you had a lot of cred. And besides that, it was a fun tournament. I mean, it was one of the most fun tournaments uh, that I would go to every year. Probably one of the reasons I was motivated to stay in martial arts as long as I was. The action was fantastic. Um and I'm not talking about the in-ring action. No, no, we got you, Blue Chew. We got you. <laughs> I was younger then. It was before I met my wife, all that good stuff. But uh, I had become friends with Joe. Joe was very successful. He promoted the prof- he went on to promote the Professional Karate Association, or PKA, which went on to p- promote fights on CBS, on ABC. Um, I went to a couple of those. I didn't fight on those fights. I was there as a, as a guest. But... Uh, Joe Corley had a lot of success. Uh, I ended up fighting for Joe Corley on ESPN a couple times. So I had a a great relationship with Joe. Joe was a very big advocate for martial arts. And because of my proximity to Turner, he and I discussed, because we both believed, and I still do, uh, that there's room for martial arts uh, as a television property. Now, I'm not going to associate you know, my plans back then with what UFC went on to become because there were two different presentations of martial arts, if you will. But yeah, we were talking about it. We, we worked on it. I developed a presentation. I pitched it to Harvey Schiller at Turner sports. Uh, it was met with, um, eh, slightly better than lukewarm interest. You know, nobody was doing cartwheels and backflips because nobody had ever heard of it before on a large scale or very few people had, outside of, you know, ABC and, and CBS. So yes, there, there is some truth to that. We were working on that, but there was never a plan to do it. There was only a presentation. Ultimately who, who made the call to shut it down? Uh, you know, I just couldn't generate enough interest and commitment on my end at Turner to, to ramp it up. I got you. So. Let's talk about, uh, something that did happen that we did see, of course, Dennis Rodman and master P are two names that, uh, WCW was synonymous with there for a little while for better or worse. And Wade Keller would report former NBA rebounder, Dennis Rodman and rapper master P have both signed one year deals with WCW to be recurring in-ring performers. Rodman's deal calls for him to work five dates, total four nitros and one pay-per-view his scheduled date is the July 5th nitro. Rodman signing gave WCW considerable mainstream press on both Monday and Tuesday and famous rapper master P has been signed by WCW. Uh, he is a NFL rookie running back, Ricky Williams, sports agent 
and he played in the CBA and tried out with the Charlotte Hornets, but failed to make the team. His relationship with WCW is in part a result of his bodyguard swole wanting to become a pro wrestler. Uh, I do feel like I need to give a little bit of frame of reference for master P because I know that, uh, we've got some younger fans or some, or maybe some older fans, some casual wrestling fans who maybe weren't familiar with master P and just thought his involvement was a bit of a joke. I'm going to defend you a little bit here. Uh, he released uh, an album back in 97 that called ghetto D and the first week sales of that album were the highest, uh, of, of any that he did. He sold 761,000 copies that first week. It would go on to be triple platinum. The next year, uh, he re- he released another hit. Uh, it's going to sell more than 400,000 week and then sell 4 million copies. And because of the way he structured his deal, it was much different than the way a lot of other, uh, musical acts had their deal structured. So by 98, he becomes. Uh, ranked number 10 on Forbes magazine's list of highest paid entertainers. They list the 40 highest paid entertainers. And in 98, he's already number 10. Uh, and this is just, you know, after breaking through in 97 with his first album. So he he made 56 and a half million bucks in 98, uh, in 2009, he earned more than $661 million. So just to give everybody a frame of reference, although master P is very much a funny, ha ha wrestling joke. The association is not a joke because he is a big time player. Uh, so chat us up here. Uh, you guys announced with a June 14th press conference. Um, here he is. He's part of WCW. The rumor in innuendo is it's a very lucrative deal for him. Um, we'll talk about the, the misses and the hits. How did it come to be originally? Is it through swole wanting to come to the power plant or did someone make a call on his behalf? How in the world did you get into business with master P? Well, and just to add, I'll answer that just a minute, but just to add to that, you know, the ghetto D album had a song called make them say, uh, which, uh, won an MTV award for best rap or a nomination for best rap. Uh, and the, he lost to Will Smith. Um, so, you know, he was in pretty good company and I think his presence on MTV was another reason why in 97, we were pretty, his presence in 97, which was one of the reasons why by 1999, we were pretty interested in him. And he went on, if you go on to 2000, shortly after this particular event, he had, uh, an album called Goodfellas, which was like the number one, uh, R and B and hip hop, uh, album on the charts at that time. So he definitely had that mainstream credibility and much like we were talking about with NBC and the funny he, he, ha, ha, you know, risks and rewards that went along with Jay Leno. Master P had a very, very large and important audience, a much younger audience than WCW had. That was a silo. That was a group of, that was a demographic that may or may not, would have may or may not paid attention to WCW without, you know, integrating somebody like Master P into a storyline. So there was a lot of good reasons to do it. I take exception to the fact that it, you know, wrestling fans, you know, consider this a hee hee ha ha kind of a joke move. We'll talk about that funny hee hee ha ha stuff when we look at this pay per view and break it down. But I think the way we use master P and swole and, you know, the no limit soldiers who are part of his, his group 
even in this match on this pay-per-view we're about to break down, I thought it was phenomenal. It was believable. There was nothing funny and hee-hee and ha-ha about it. It was just about as intense as anything else I've ever seen in terms of the way it was presented and its believability. So I, I do disagree with that. As far as how it came down, you know, I, it, it didn't come directly through me or to me, I should say. Uh, obviously, I, w- I got involved in it. But my recall of this was I think Conan was really in there. I think, I think Conan and Swole somehow connected. And Conan... And probably Kevin Nash, because Conan and, and Kevin were pretty tight at this point. Um, it was really Conan and Kevin who brought the opportunity to me, and and I saw the value in it. Yeah, I'm sure we're going to get there, but um, you know, I know the storyline is kind of funny, but Master P was a fucking major player, and anybody, and, and I know when you look back on like hardcore hip hop heads are sort of anti-Master P and they're going to love that, you know, two white dudes are talking about this right now, but Master P was fucking legit there for a little while. I mean, the impact he made in music at least was, um, he's going to be on nitro the following week, uh, as, as we're building towards this pay-per-view and these guys climb out of a limo and they run into, uh, the former Mr. Perfect who's trying to put over how great this is. And master P tries to give him a, an autographed copy of his album. Um, and then of course, you know, he breaks the album and they all run after him. And before you know it, we've got our feud. It's the no limit soldiers in the West Texas rednecks. And the song rap is crap is what everybody wants to hear about. <laughs> it's tremendous that you guys got you know, Bobby Duncan Jr. and Barry Windham and Curry Henning and all these guys together to sing rap is crap. Whose idea was that? How was it put together? I mean, I know it's sort of silly, but I mean, that was the idea. It's fucking fun. It's Kurt Henning. It's Kurt Henning. It was Kurt Henning all the way. That was his idea. Kurt Henning was a huge country music fan. I mean, his kids still are, <laughs> you know, I, I, I follow a couple of them on, on Twitter and, uh, you know, Hank Williams is is an icon in the Hennig family. And no, this was that was all that was all Kurt Hennig. And I loved it. I thought it was great. Let's uh let's address the rumor and innuendo. You know, you've told us before what the terms of the deal were with Dennis Rodman. Supposedly Master P is getting like two hundred grand in appearance. Is that true? I don't I don't remember, honestly. I, I have to go back and look at contracts and, and court documents that reflected them. Uh, I, I don't recall off the top of my head. Let's get to the beginning of the June 7th nitro hack is going to come out with chastity and beat Prince Ikea in a minute and 40 seconds. I'm mentioning this because hack came to the ring smoking a cigarette and on commentary, you're complaining that hack knew he wasn't allowed to smoke on WCW TV and he walks by the desk and glares at you. You tell him to put the cigarette out and get in the ring. And JJ Dillon comes to the ring and tells hack. They couldn't start the match until hack put the cigarette out. Hack blew smoke in his face and said, make me, you get in the ring, take the mic from Dillon. You ask hack to put the cigarette out so they could start the show. Hack blows smoke in your face, shoves you several members of security step in, but you tell them everything's all right. You turn and shove hacks face and then security steps in and restrains hack. And you take the cigarette from hack. And tell the timekeeper not to ring the bell in disqualification, but instead let him wrestle. 
And back on commentary, you said you hate smokers and you mentioned that chastity is a movie star. I guess we should mention around this time. It came out that before chastity popped up in ECW as a valet for Raven's flock, she did an adult film called live bait with Jules Jordan. And, uh, that popped off real big. Once Jules realized, Hey, wait a minute. This girl's on TV. He promoted it big and tons of sales flooded in. Um, why did you acknowledge? I mean, was that a little tongue in cheek, a little inside baseball, something to get the smart marks riled up about the movie star. It feels like something you would have shot away from. No, it was, it was definitely tongue in cheek. I would have, you know, identified her as a porn star if I would have been able to, but you know, the folks at Turner would have had a real issue with that. So I, I was, you know, forced to kind of keep it tongue in cheek. Pardon the pun. Uh, I was going to say, pardon the pun. (laughs) Tell me about the, uh, Sandman smoking on the way to the ring thing. I mean, this is fun because I think most people who are familiar with the Sandman character know that that's hardcore hack and are sort of expecting him to smoke a cigarette on his way to the ring. But when you're trying to stop him, that makes for an entertaining little piece of business. How did this come about? Whose idea was it? What do you remember? Ah, uh, whose idea was it? Oh my God, there's no way anybody would really remember that. So I'm not going to try to pretend I do. I like the idea. I mean, I g- going back and watching this, I dug it. You know, I had the giant smoke a cigarette in the ring before. It's kind of like the opposite of what you would expect a well-trained athlete to do. And heels being people that would rather lie, cheat, and steal than work out is kind of consistent with his character. He had done it before. Um, I, I liked it. It was unusual. It was a characteristic and, and part of a character that was unique, you know, and that's not always easy to achieve. It, it was a little controversial. People at Turner didn't like it at all. Um, something I had a real hard time with on Nitro, but I was able to get away with on pay-per-views. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, is there any blowback from Turner when, um, they find out that one of their performers, was in a movie like that? I mean, you know, we've talked a little bit about standards and practices and how on edge everything was, and you had to get everything approved, et cetera, et cetera. Does anybody say boo about her, her appearance in that movie? No, no. And I'm, I'm guessing here, right? Nobody said a word to me to, to answer your question. Nobody from Turner called me the next day and said, Hey, what the hell are you doing? Why do you have a porn star on TV? This is outrageous. Nobody said that. I'm guessing, and it's just a guess, it's pure speculation, that nobody at Turner watched the pay-per-view, heard the commentary, or had any idea where she came from. It wasn't like anybody at Turner had any real interest in WCW and watched the product. Um, they probably wouldn't have reacted unless they would have gotten a deluge of hate mail and emails of fans and, you know, haters and trolls, you know, complaining about it just to get some attention. Right. But that didn't happen. That didn't happen. Let's keep it moving that was, here. That, that was long before trolls were fashionable. Now they're fashionable. There's trolls everywhere. Everybody's vying for attention and is offended by everything and, you know, has to make an issue out of every single thing that they see in their daily life. So now it's, you know, probably couldn't have got away with it in today's environment. But back then, I, I don't think it registered on anybody's Richter scale. The same episode is where we see Nash uh, pouring Savage onto, uh, or Nash pouring sewage onto Savage. Easy for me to say. Uh, he's going to come to the ring 
Nash is carrying a gym bag and the WCW title belt. And he has a chair. He sets his bag on and he cuts a promo challenging Randy to come to the ring and Randy and the savage come to the ring and they've got a bucket of sewage. Nash takes the title, but leaves his gym bag in the ring on the chair. He starts cutting a promo. Eventually Nash's bag starts moving behind Savage's back. A woman gets out, I guess a contortionist, and uh, she pours a bucket of sewage on Savage, leaves the ring, jumping through the crowd here. Uh, yeah. That was awesome. And there was a tremendous amount of interest in this pretty good looking little contortionist. The guys back in the locker room really, really wanted to. To get her phone number, <laughs> there was a lot of there was a lot of dialogue about that. Later in the show, a shot airs of Savage's entourage sitting in a limo, and Nash comes out, and the woman baits him into going for a ride, and they exit the limo, and told him, um, to come get in first, which he did. They close the door, call him a sucker. The privacy window lowers. We reveal that Randy Savage is the driver. Savage pulls the limo ahead and parks it against a huge dumpster. And Savage gets out of the limo and signals for someone else in the distance. And then a white Hummer runs into the limo twice with Nash inside. And after the Humvee leaves the area, a groggy Nash attempts to get out of the limo, but can't. And this is the white Hummer attack that you've been asked about for 20 fucking years. <laughs> and you, you know what? And I was so excited to see this because I do people beat me up on this white Hummer. Who was driving the Hummer? Like you, you who was that person? What was that storyline going to be? And, and, you know, I knew I did it. You know, I remembered, I remembered the scene, but I hadn't seen it till I watched the show. What an incredible stunt and setup. I loved it. It was awesome from the way the girls took advantage of Nash's character <laughs> and suckered him into the limo for a, a foursome. You know, that, that was awesome because that was consistent with the character of Kevin Nash at the time. Um, Randy, you know, driving it, made it a perfect setup. And then, you know, that Hummer just blasted the side of that limo. It was a perfect scene and setup. I really loved it. Well, you know, the question, what's that? Who was driving the fucking Hummer? Ellis Edwards. No, but in storyline, who was it? Here's the truth. And, and seeing it again made me, you know, kind of jog my memory in, in, in a different way than just talking about it. There was no plan. It, it was a stunt. It was kind of like a one-off. It, it was designed to put you know, fear and, and possibly injure Kevin Nash going into his match. It was just a storytelling device and in a way to raise the stakes in that particular story. There was never a plan to have a secret person behind the wheel. It just, it just wasn't. It was an autonomous hit and run is what it was set up, of course, by, by Savage. Ah, people are going to be disappointed with that answer, but I appreciate your honesty. Um, this, I got to just tell you though, just as a sidebar, all these doo-doo hijinks feels very Vince McMahon or Vince Russo or DX. It doesn't feel like it fits with WCW. I don't know why. Uh, but let's, let's address something that Wade Keller wrote at the time. You had done an interview with WCW.com and 
Wade wrote, when Eric Bischoff does media interviews, he ranges from smooth, confident, and refreshingly blunt to frazzled, clueless, and full of bullshit. It depends <laughs> on the forum, the time frame, and the questions. Last week, he returned to one of his favorite forums, an internet chat, and addressed the current events in WCW. On the surface, his answers on WCW.com often seem completely satisfactory, but beneath the surface lies some clues as to why so many key WCW revenue categories are sloping downward. Ooh, because Wade Keller had, you know, it's all those years that he spent at Harvard business and, and certainly, you know, the decades he spent inside of the wrestling industry that, that gave him this insight and the ability to see clues go on. He's talking about, um, well, here's the question that you're responding to on whether Kevin Nash's booking benefits himself and his friends only. You said, absolutely not. One of the things, first of all, I knew when I brought Kevin in is that it's going to take some time. It's a great fantasy to think about bringing one individual in and having the ability to completely reverse a six or eight month trend in a period of two or three weeks or months or two months. But that's very, very unrealistic to be honest. And to be objective, it took Vince McMahon almost two years to figure out a way to compete with WCW. It would be unfair to expect that Kevin Nash or Steven Spielberg for that matter could come in and make a change overnight in WCW situation. You've got to be realistic. The tendency is for wrestling fans to sit back and criticize and have all the answers and point at all the flaws and say all the things that they would do. But wrestling fans don't have to deal with injuries, contractual issues, and have never been in a position or they have to sit down and write seven hours of television per week. I think Kevin's doing a great job. Kevin is a very, very creative person and he's very committed. That doesn't mean he has all the answers. He's not the one and only savior for the wrestling business. He's a huge asset and he's got great ideas. And as he gets more and more familiar with what it takes to build this. And as he gets more experience in the process, I believe six months ago when I asked him to come in and I believe even more today, he's going to be a substantial factor in WCW success. Now that's what you said. And Wade says, it's admirable that you try to defend your employee in a public forum. And he should until he decides to relieve him of his booking duties. But the scary part is Bischoff apparently actually believes what he says. And that Nash has shown signs of being a successful booker and quote, just needs time. It's become obvious to so many people in WCW and those outside of WCW that Nash is not qualified to be the booker. In case, or in any case, there is no sign of a turnaround and Bischoff can wait a few years for Steve Austin's WWF contract to expire and then offer him 15 million a year to jump. And that so far has been Bischoff's path to success. The shock value of acquiring big names or Bischoff could wait for Scott Hall to get his life back together personally so that Hall can come up with another NWO like concept to help WCW. Those who know Hall and Nash say Hall has four times the wrestling IQ of Nash. But without Hall, Waltman, and Michaels around to help him, Nash is left to sink or swim on his own. Nash, as a booker, is paying the price for not being a wrestling fan as a kid. The things he does are merely derivative of truly successful formulas. His booking ideas are pale imitations of what he thinks should work. That means key intangibles are missing, such as pacing, internal logic, and well-defined characters. Nash didn't have this 15-year education through osmosis that the great minds of wrestling industries have had, and that is growing up a fan of wrestling. Bischoff's success has relied on a safe formula. Do what Hulk Hogan says. After all, if he hangs his hat on the advice of the biggest star in wrestling over the last 20 years, it's hard for his superiors to fault him. 
One of Bischoff's weaknesses though, has been the inability to decipher between Hogan suggesting what's best for WCW versus Hogan suggesting what's best for Hogan's self-preservation. Hogan has laughed behind Bischoff's back about that to select confidants. And now everyone is laughing at Bischoff's on-air claim that Hogan cares about the industry. People can't believe that an unabashedly selfish star like Hogan has snowed Bischoff into thinking he cares about the welfare of the industry over his own welfare. So I'll let you, there's a lot to pack in there. First of all, I thought you defended Nash gracefully as well. You, as well as you could, uh, in the public forum, but what do you take? What do you think about Wade's take that the only way you can turn this around is to do what you've always done. Go write a check. It's really, it's interesting. And let's, let's break that. I mean, again, you know, you, that was a dump truck full of stupid shit. And now I've got to kind of dig <laughs> through it all and, 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 and kind of pick out the pieces that I can talk about most succinctly. First of all, let's, if you believe in Wade Keller's theory and, and perspective at that time, the only thing that Bischoff has ever done was what Hulk Hogan wanted him to do. That's basically the premise, right? Well, I can tell you that Hulk Hogan hated the cruiserweight division. He fucking hated it. Did that stop me from doing it? No. Hulk Hogan hated the fact that I was bringing in, um, not only for the cruiserweight division, but bringing in a lot of um, Hispanic wrestlers and Japanese wrestlers, not because he didn't appreciate them and not because he didn't respect them, because he believed that the audience doesn't know them and they don't know their characters, so why are we giving you know so much of our television time to it? Did that stop me from doing it? No. Did when when I challenged? Uh, or let's go back up even further. When I started giving away finishes, you know, to the WWF early on with Nitro, Hulk Hogan hated it. Did it stop me from doing it? At any point? Absolutely not. So th- there were so many flaws in that premise in reality that it it's hard to take those types of comments as anything other than WCW was trending down. There was a lot of anxiety, you know, amongst WCW fans, casual and otherwise. The battle between WCW and WWF or WWE, whatever the hell it was at the time, you know, had really peaked and now WWE was was taking over and there was a ba- and it had a bandwagon effect. Guys like Wade Keller and Dave Meltzer and and others who were writing these dirt sheets at the time, whose income and their ability to pay their bills was dependent solely on their ability to cater to um, th- their audience. And and that's what all of this kind of bullshit was. Because as I just pointed out, and that's just, you know, in a course of three minutes, how many factual errors existed in the premise that you just laid out. I didn't have to hang my hat on anything other than what I believed to be true and what I believed would work. I never had that pressure from, you know, the people above me. As a matter of fact, until really, until the day I got let go on September 10th, 1999, nobody ever talked about me, to me, about creative or why they were more, they were focused on EBITDA. They were focused on the bottom line. They were focused on a lot of other things. But the, the, the creative of the product was never, ever, not even casually, a discussion between me and any of my superiors. So from a factual point of view versus the, 
uh, self-fulfilling, self-fulfilling agenda of Dave Meltzer and in this case Dave Wade Keller, it's all bullshit. It's the, 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 the I hate Hogan agenda was so strong at that time. He was like the root of all evil. You know, it, it, it was really, if it wasn't for Hulk Hogan, Eric Bischoff wouldn't be in the position he's in. If it wasn't for Hulk Hogan, Eric Bischoff wouldn't be doing this. He wouldn't be doing that. Well, if it wasn't for Hulk Hogan, we would have never, never been able to pull the nose up on a franchise who, by the way, was run by creatively and otherwise, all these so-called wrestling experts, Bill Watts and others who I love and respect, who weren't able to achieve one-tenth of what I achieved. So when you ask me how I feel about that, I look at the total picture. Show me one person who grew up as a wrestling fan who has ever gone on to become a successful head writer or head booker. Was it Brian Gewertz? No. I don't think Brian, you know, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I'll have to call Brian and ask him. You know, was was he a, a huge wrestling fan as a kid growing up? I don't know. You know, who 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 are these people that were out there that had all of this wrestling experience and creative abilities and understood arcs and, you know, pacing and timing, which are just fucking words that he pulled out of a magazine somewhere. He doesn't really know what they are, or didn't, I should say. Because it, it's just, it, it, it's silly. I don't want to keep talking about it because I'll just get myself wound up again. I conclude my I, I conclude my analysis of that tripe. Tripe, by the way, is the internal intestinal organs of a cow. It's made, <laughs> they use they use it to make menudo, which is basically gut soup. That's what I think of that kind of crap. Uh, here's your response in this WCW.com chat about the four horsemen breaking up numbers don't lie as much as we wish they were lying numbers don't lie and you look at the focus on the four horsemen since really last november and take a look at what's happened with the lumber the number since last november and that pretty much sums it up you weren't i mean the internet uh, as a majority if we if there was one unified vote i think most people would say eric bischoff didn't like the four horsemen and that's certainly the takeaway to a chat like this. Do you want to correct that narrative? Mm, I can't correct it because I said it and hearing it back, I was wrong. I just was. You know, the four horsemen didn't work because it wasn't it wasn't produced well. There was the, the creative was lacking. Look, the four horsemen were, and to a degree, um, still are, you know, one of those iconic kind of periods during this industry that people of all ages, especially now with the WWE network, because people can go back and watch some of this stuff that, you know, whose parents might not have been born when it was going on. Um, wow. Did I just say that? Um, and I, you know, it didn't work. It wasn't working, but it wasn't because it couldn't have worked. It's because it wasn't being produced the way it needed to be produced. And I recognize that now. Talking about Sting, he said, he's got a huge feature in WCW. Here's a guy who, despite some ups and downs and despite some opportunities and some missed opportunities and a whole lot of internal strife and so forth, this guy is still day in, day out, one of the most successful characters in the industry. You can't hurt that character. You can only underestimate that character. Given the ball at any time, Sting can probably be the most dominant character in the industry. 
How about that? I was right. <laughs> well, wait. well, I mean, what else can I say? I was absolutely right on the money. Let's talk about um, the Great American Bash. And Meltzer wrote of this show, I think you're going to like this. The Great American Bash can be summed up in five words. This one was real bad. What an asshole. You disagree? You like the show? I like the show. I like the show a lot. And we'll break it down match by batch. I mean, I, 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 you know, there was a couple holes in the show, admittedly. There was a couple matchups that were just kind of like, okay, let's get through this and get on to the next one. By the way, that's true in most shows, even by today's standards. Um, but from top to bottom, with with a couple exceptions that I'll address, uh, there was a lot of great stuff happening on this show. And I, I can't wait to dig into it and find out what was so fucking horrible about this show and Dave's learned opinion other than you know catering to his his base of readers that felt like they needed to support Dave because Dave was beating up on the losing, you know, on the losing, uh, on the losing fighter at this point, there were two people in the ring. It was me and Vince McMahon or it was WCW and WWE. And we were on the short end of the stick and it was easy for Dave to jump on that bandwagon and, you know, pummel away because it made him look smarter than he really is or was. I get it. Our first match is hardcore hack and Brian knobs. They're going to go five minutes and 41 seconds in a hardcore match. Um, knob says, let's forget the weapons and just have a slug fest. And then hack came out and knobs hit him with the garbage can shot. And they're all over the place using various different weapons. I know your favorite is the cookie sheet. Um, oh, and a garbage can lid. God forbid I ever get hit in the head with a garbage can lid. It just, oh, it'd be devastating. Yeah. Devastating. Yeah. The wife and I were having a conversation that. If someone ever, if an intruder ever breaks into my home here, all she's got to do is get a cookie sheet out of the kitchen, hit him over the head with it. And he's, he's fucking dead. You know, you know, you wouldn't even have to hit him over the head because you know, so many, you know, criminals I'm sure are familiar with the use of garbage can lids and cookie sheets and professional wrestling that all, you don't even have to use it. You just have to stand there with it. You have to show that you have a cookie sheet, not just any cookie sheet, an extra large cookie sheet from Walmart. If they see that extra large cookie sheet from Walmart, they're out the freaking door. It's you can like leave your, you can leave your gun in your closet. You don't even need a gun. Just get a cookie sheet. It's like the new version of racking a shotgun. Like everybody knows that noise. They know oh. what's coming. Well, th now they know if they see the cookie sheet, I mean, that's your ass. Oh, I know. No, it's true. It's true. So look, okay. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. I'm just excited. Knobs is giving hack a pounding until hack gets the kendo stick. Then he scores the pin after one shot to the head. And after the match, Hugh Morris ran out and he knobs and Jimmy Hart gave hack a three-way pile driver. And then Morris moonsaulted the ladder with Hawk underneath and knobs comes off the ropes with a garbage clan, a garbage can splash onto the ladder with hack underneath. Uh, Meltzer would say hack took a lot of punishment, but it wasn't really much of a match star and a half. <laughs> Look for what this match is or was, I should say, um, it was a hardcore match. Those matches are never, you know, stellar storytelling, amazing athleticism type of matches. They're devastating. They're brutal. They're physical in a way that generally speaking, far beyond what you would normally see in a regular match. That's the only reason to have one of these cluster fucks. 
because I've never liked them, never will. But I do. I real. I recognize that some people absolutely love them. They did then. They probably still do. That's why this match existed on this card. In terms of the quality of this particular hardcore match, now granted, nobody took a you know a staple gun to somebody's forehead or a cheese grater to their face or, you know, nobody landed on a bed of broken Coke bottles and shit like that. But in terms of the actual physicality within the match, which is again, the premise of this match to begin with, I thought it, I I thought it was pretty great. You know, go back and look at the bump that hack takes at 17 minutes and 30 seconds on that ladder. If you feel the need, you know, if the only way you can get your rocks off in a hardcore match is by devastating bumps, go back to 1730, watch the bump that, that hack took, you know, on the ladder in this, in this particular matchup and tell me what was so horrible about this match. I, I totally disagree. That's just, it's just, it's pandering. It's jumping on the bandwagon. It's being negative for the sake of being negative because that's your professional. That's what that comment was by Dave. Any objective person that looks at this match for what it was in the, in the context of when it took place, I, 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 I dare you to go back and watch it on the WWE Network. I dare you to tell me why you thought it was such a horrible match. You can find me on at eBischoff on Twitter. I can't wait to hear from you. I can't wait to hear you defend Van fucking Hammer. Coming out next on pay-per-view, he's going to wrestle and pin Mikey Whipwreck in eight minutes and 35 seconds. Meltzer says, this is one of those matches that people had decided was the worst match in history before the first lockup. It really wasn't that bad, but people at this point refuse to accept people like this on pay-per-view shows. And it isn't even speaking of ability since Whipwreck's first pay-per-view match for WCW was great, but more in the case of Hammer. A guy who's getting pushed for no reason other than the booking team has no clue. And Whipwreck is a guy who isn't pushed as a star on TV. Thus, nobody cares about him. And they had Hooventude and Kidman at their disposable and couldn't figure out a way to get them into the show. Uh, Whipwreck got a near fall with a flying Thez press. Hammer caught his second one and planted him with a sidewalk slam before using his Cobra clutch drop for the pin. Three quarters of a star. Van Hammer and Whipwreck on a pay-per-view. Defend it. You know, we were trying to get Hammer over, you know, and clearly that's a debatable position to take. Um, I will say, after watching this over again, this was probably as bad as this match was, and I agree it was not a great match. As bad as it was, this was probably as good as Hammer ever looked. He, He... for the first time, well, for the first time since I've been going back and looking at these shows and, and Hammer's involvement in them, he looked like he was a little more comfortable in his own skin. And I, when I say that, I, I think back to, and I know I'm going to go way off track here and I apologize, <clears throat> but I want to try to make a point. When I was working for Vern Gagne in the AWA, and probably a year or two after I got there, when it was obvious that Vern was trying to scrounge dollars everywhere he could find them, he had this vast library of wrestling from the 80s. God, I wish I would have <laughs> seen the value in it back then, right? But he had this vast library that was just sitting there collecting dust. Some of it was actually rotting. It was going bad because it had been stored for so long in an environment that was either too humid or too dry in the wintertime. And the temperatures fluctuating all year round 
um, really took its toll on the on the film itself, on the tape itself. So my idea was to, because I would go back, you know, at night when I was done working, I would go back to the office and I would dig out some of these old, you know, some of them were one inch tapes, some of them were three quarter inch tapes, some of them were, I think, two inch, if I remember. They were, I mean, they were really old. And I'd wind them up in the post-production studio and go back and watch them. And it occurred to me after watching a lot of the stuff, because there was so much gold there, people that had gone on to become big stars in WWF and all that, I thought, wow, we should come up with an AWA best of the 80s. And in the process, and I think I've talked to you about this before, and in the process of, I literally watched thousands of hours. Well, that's probably exaggerating. Probably around 1,000 hours, 800 to 1,000 hours of old AWA footage from the period of about 1982 on up to about 1989 when I was actually doing this stuff. And one of the things that I noticed and, you know, being submerged and looking at so much old stuff was that the characters who really stood out, the guys who made money, the guys who went on to go to the WWF or had gone on to become big stars, they, they were very real, not real. They were very, true to their character, the ones that weren't successful and were always on the lower end of the spectrum were guys who were mimicking what they thought a wrestler should be, if that makes sense to you. In other words, they didn't feel their character. They didn't believe their character. They weren't so comfortable with their character and who that character was that they could go out and portray that character and it felt believable and natural and real. Those are the characters that got over, you know, as, as corny as it may sound, Baron von Raschke was one of those characters. Nick Bockwinkel was the best uh, of the best at being that character. Bobby Heenan, um, Wahoo McDaniels, Ray Stevens, you know, Kurt Hennig, you know, these were all Rick Rude. These were all people that really believed that they were that character. Whereas others, you know, and I'll just pick a couple random names out of the hat, you know, uh, Derek Dukes, for example, probably someone you've never heard of. He was going out and and pretending to be a wrestler based on what he had watched, you know, when he was a little kid growing up as Wade Keller, you know, since that's the threshold for, you know, being significant in the business. A lot of people grow up watching wrestling and go out and imitate what they think a wrestler is. Others become the character and can go out and portray it in a believable way. And that that line, that demarcation point between those who pretend they're a wrestler and those who become one in, in, the, in the most real sense possible is what makes the difference. And I lay all this out because, if again, go back, watch this match. If you don't believe what I'm saying, watch Van Hammer. For, forget about everything that he had done in the past. Forget about all the bad rap that he's always had and deservedly so in, in many cases. But just pretend you know nothing about Van Hammer and watch this match. It's not a great match. It's not something that I can defend. It shouldn't have been on the card. It shouldn't have been against, you know, Mikey Whipwreck especially. And if it was going to be against Mikey Whipwreck, that match should have been laid out so much differently that would have been able to allow Mikey Whipwreck to shine and show what he is capable of doing because what he was capable of doing was very unique and he was very, very good at it. But the way the match was laid out, you didn't see any of it. It was just a big guy and a smaller guy 
But despite all that, go back and look at this match. Look at Van Hammer like you'd never seen me seen him before, and tell me if he was that out of place. He he had an amazing look. He was a huge. He had a great build, and at least by this point in this match, his fundamentals were sound enough that there was a reason for him to be on a roster. Maybe not on this pay per view, but definitely on the roster, in my opinion. I fucking hate you for trying to make a convincing argument for Van Hammer. I'm not, make, I'm not making a, I'm just saying, you know, it's so easy for all of us, including myself who have been beat up by this shit for decades now. It's so easy to just take a position without really being objective about it because it's a popular opinion. It's what Dave Meltzer says. It's what Wade Keller says. It's what I read on the internet. You know, there's, there's a group think you know, where everybody starts to feel more comfortable with themselves and their knowledge and their position and their perspective on things when the largest group of people all feel the way you do. But if you really want to be honest, go back and just look at this match, forget everything you've read, everything you've heard, and ask yourself, does this guy deserve a position on the roster? And if you're honest, if you're able to be honest, which most people aren't, I have a challenge with it from time to time myself because of the way I feel personally about certain things. It's not always easy to be objective. But I think, if, like I did, I looked at this match and I went, fuck. In the first, I mean, I, the way this match was laid out is the thing that stands out to me. Mikey Whiprack, we've covered him before. One of his first debuts in WCW, he looked fucking awesome. He was great. And I love big guy, little guy matchups. You know, I loved it with Rey Mysterio and Kevin Nash. Rey Mysterio got over because of his style and the things he was able to do when he was in a match with guys much bigger than than him. If the same thought or logic or awareness would have been communicated during whoever laid out this match, Hammer could have still won. It still would have achieved whatever arc somebody was trying to achieve at the time. I don't remember what it was. It still would have gotten Hammer over to the degree he was able to at this particular time, but it would have been able to. But Mikey Whipwreck, even in losing, could have gotten himself over even more, and it didn't happen. That's what I'm most angry about. Is the way, or you know, looking back, is the way this match was laid out. Not that Hammer sucked, or you know that Mikey wasn't capable. It was I know what could have been had this match been laid out better. Let's keep the bullshit going. We get Buff Bagwell. What do you mean the bullshit going? I take offense to that. I'm honest with you. I tell you how I feel no, about no, something. No, no, not your ball. And no. and here we are on a Sunday, and you're telling me I'm 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 bullshitting you. No, that's not what I said. I'm referencing the bullshit show. Oh, it's not a bullshit show. That's fucking worse. Why would you call it a bullshit show? I can't. What? All right. Next Dude. up is Disco Inferno. He's going to be taking on Buff Bagwell. Oh, this is a bullshit match. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, this is really bad. This is really bad. <laughs> I like that you get hot at me and then you walk it back. Two stars as these guys get 10 minutes. Buff Bagwell gets the win. Uh, he blocked the Macarena pile driver and came back and finally used the buff blockbuster. Didn't look the best. Uh, what do you think? It's just. You know, it's a little bit like, okay, let me, let me wind myself down just a little bit. It's a little bit like a hardcore match to the extent that I don't really like hardcore matches of any kind 
So no matter what, I'm probably not going to really like it. I may say, hey, it's not bad for that. But for the most part, if I see a hardcore match, even to this day, I'll go out of my way to avoid it. It's just not my cup of tea. Just same reason I don't watch soap operas. I just, eh, not my thing. A lot of people love them. I'm not one of them. This match kind of falls into that same category, <laughs> you know, because Disco's character is a comedic character coming out, you know, in that, you know, Saturday Night Fever, red and black Saturday Night Fever gimmick and doing his disco thing. It, he's a comedy act. So it's hard for me as a fan and as a producer to take him seriously. Doesn't mean other people don't enjoy it. And I remind myself of that every time I say something like this. I know that, you know, Disco had fans and, okay, maybe he did, but there's a place for characters like that. The problem I have with Bagwell is that every single match that I've gone back and looked at with you over the last almost year and a half has been the same. Yep. The character's the same. Everything he does is exactly the same. His look is the same. There's no dimension to, to him at all. You see no emotion, rarely. You see any emotion out of him other than that, you know, in love with himself type of character. And I, I just, it's one of the, and I look, and again, go back, watch this match, WWE Network, find it. It's right there. It's easy. Go back and look at this match. Analyze the work rate. Mark's work was, I'm not going to, Call, he's not Chris Benoit, not Eddie Guerrero, certainly not Rey Mysterio. Um, he wasn't Chris Jericho, but he was damn good. He was right up there. There was nothing wrong with his work. The only thing wrong with him is that there was he had one-dimensional character in a three-dimensional world, and it just it felt flat every single time, and this was no exception. Yeah, uh, I've never I couldn't tell you my favorite Buff Bagwell match. I, I thought Disco Inferno was at least a funny character, but uh, not a big, not a big buff guy. All right. Next up, we've got Conan tagging with Ray Mysterio jr. Here. They're going to be taking on Kurt Henning and Bobby Duncan jr. They go 10 minutes and 44 seconds. Of course, master P and his entourage are going to come out to ringside for this. Uh, Meltzer would say it's not even as if they try and disguise that an angle is coming and make it look the slightest bit, not contrived with that angle at the beginning of the show. And the only guys coming out for this match, rather than being special guests happen to be those they're just enjoying the show uh henning's entrance music i don't even know what the fuck that meant me either what did that mean this is a guy that prides himself on ten thousand words and every dirt sheet or whatever it was back then well however he referred to it newsletter there are ten thousand words you could have probably got by with about 40 percent of that because 60 percent of it was bullshit like you just read that made absolutely no sense conan and mysterio come out with gas masks on and, um, he would say that Kurt's interest music should head up most of the worst of lists for the worst music ever, but it's going to become an all-time cult favorite. And Kurt is going to become a cult baby face for his role in this feud. As long as the powers that be don't cut his head off ahead of time. Um, the match is what it is. We see swole masterpiece bodyguard who wants to be a pro wrestler. Uh, who once played for the Edmonton Eskimos of the Canadian football league knocks Duncan jr. Down with a forearm and then Mysterio jr. Pins him and, uh, security that got all the P's entourage out of there for interfering in the match while allowing Henning Wyndham and Duncan to destroy Conan and Mysterio in the ring after the match 
including hog tying Mysterio. Uh, Meltzer would say the angle wasn't bad, but it wasn't anything that would be remembered five minutes after it was over two and a quarter stars. So here's your, one of your big payoffs for master P of course, Conan and Mysterio sort of defending the rap isn't crap and defending the no limit soldiers honor here against the West Texas rednecks. It's a cult classic favorite. That's for sure. We still get tweets about this all the time. What, what do you remember about this match? And, and what do you think watching it back for the first time in a long time? Um, the setup, you know, the backstage, you know, before the match actually happened was an interesting scenario. Um, interesting because as so often happens when civilians, meaning those people who aren't really part of the wrestling business or definitely aren't part of the industry, um, but, but our celebrities and have some stroke and have some credibility step into the wrestling business. Then you have kind of like a piranha like atmosphere where you've got a lot of talent that, you know, they either they want the rub or in the case of certain people who are not going to get named here on this podcast, defend themselves, um, certain people as a rib would get those individuals stirred up just for their own entertainment. Um, and a lot of that went on here so much so that at one point here in Baltimore, uh, master P and a, a group of his no limit soldiers and I got along with them. Great. We had no problem doing business together. Negotiations went fine. All the creative discussions up till this afternoon went fine. Everybody was excited about it. Lighthearted about it. No issues. Right. And about three hours before the show, I'm in my dressing room in the Baltimore arena. Anybody that's ever been backstage here knows what I'm talking about. You're in a tiny little office because it was an old, old venue. And I'm in an office about the size of, you know, an average size bathroom in a 3,000 square foot house. So I'm in this little tiny office and there's all of a sudden it's somebody's pounded at my door. I'm like, who the fuck is pounding at my door? You know, usually people just walk in. So I opened up door and there's Master P and like six or eight of his no limit soldiers. And I could tell by looking at them, they weren't happy. They said, come on in. It's like, what, what's up? And I, I'm paraphrasing this whole conversation. I don't really remember the, the exact details of the conversation. But it was essentially, we need to talk. Well, what do we need to talk about? We've already talked through this stuff. We've already laid out the finish. We've already, we've already done all this stuff. What is it that you need to talk about? And clearly someone had gotten a hold of Master P and spun him up. And who knows how? I'm not gonna pretend I know how or, or what was said and done to 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 get him spun up. But clearly someone communicated to him that he was being taken advantage of or not positioned in the right way or any number of other things that would take somebody that doesn't have any real experience in our industry and make them feel like they're being taken advantage of. Right. And it, by the way, same thing happened to a lot of wrestlers who broke into the business without having to spend a whole lot of time in it that all of a sudden found themselves in the upper echelon of a card, uh, they didn't really have a clear understanding of what the business was all about because they just didn't have the experience. And all of a sudden you get three, four or five people in their ear. It wasn't easy to manipulate them and take advantage of them. Sometimes for entertainment, sometimes because others had an agenda in this case, I'm because I know the people involved 
I'm pretty sure it was strictly for entertainment purposes only. But regardless of that, P walks into my office with a bunch of his guys. I'm in there by myself. I'm trying to figure out what they're so hot about. And as I'm trying to figure it out, they're probably thinking I'm trying to play stupid or deny it or, you know, try to to avoid having to, to talk to them. They're getting hotter and hotter and hotter. Finally, one of the guys that P was in there with says, well, we're going to resolve this one way or the other, MFR, reaches inside of his jacket, puts his hand in there. He didn't pull out a gun, didn't have to. Message was loud and clear. <laughs> I thought, oh, this is great. This is perfect. You know, I, this is where Kevin Nash power bombed me off the, 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 the stage, and this is where I'm going to take a bullet to the grill for something that somebody's, you know, stirred the pot about that abs- makes absolutely no sense. So I remember that moment of it, and, you know, it dissipated. I took care of it. It went away. Nobody got shot, and the show went on. <laughs> I don't know why that tickles me, but you said, oh, by the way, nobody got shot. No, nobody did. And the the match went on. Now, (laughs) and I sound like I'm shilling here for the WWE Network, and I don't mean to be, but I really want our listeners. By the way, I think our listeners are probably some of the more educated listeners. Without question. No, they are. Because they're they're into the weeds, they're into the granularity, they're into the business of the business. So these aren't just opinion type wrestling fans that just want to latch on to the you know, most popular opinion. Our audience really wants to learn and understand and have their own opinion, whether they agree with you or I or not. I just think they're more highly educated. Thank you. But I encourage people to go back and look at this match. Fuck Dave Meltzer and whatever he had to say. Forget about anything I have to say. Go back and watch this match yourself. Watch the audience react to it. Watch the action in the ring. Watch the pacing. Watch the finish. Watch the energy and the excitement. And, oh, by the way, ask yourself, at the end of this particular match, does this segment, does this match, does this moment in time lend itself to further story? And then contact me at eBischoff on Twitter and tell me what you think. If you disagree with me, I want to know. But if you agree with me, tag it with fuck Dave Meltzer. Oh, let's not use that hashtag. Why not? Because I'm on the show too. And I like him. He's my friend. And you're just shitting on my friend every week. You bring him up. He said the stupid shit. What am I supposed to do? Because he's your friend. And despite the fact that he writes stupid shit, that's baseless and fraught with just more flaws than anything that I've ever read about the wrestling business. I'm supposed to say, oh yeah, well, he's your friend. It's okay. I'll take that. He was right. I'm not shitting on Hulk Hogan every week here. He's your friend. He, he, he doesn't deserve to be shit on. Okay. Let's keep it going. Let's talk about, uh, well, I guess before we do, you know, you've sort of blown our mind a little bit. First of all, it tickled me every time you would say master P and one of his no limit soldiers. I don't know why that's funny, but it is. But I also found it funny that you listen to hip hop. And we found out a few weeks ago that you actually have hip hop unlike your playlist and you know who yellow wolf is and all that surprised me till so, it's gone. One of my favorite songs. So I listen to that. It's not only, not only do I have yellow wolf on my playlist, but his one of his top songs till it's gone is probably one of my top three most recently played. Uh, let's get to the next match. Rick flair is going to wrestle Roddy Piper. They get to a DQ at eight minutes and 16 seconds. Gets a dud rating. I can't remember that ever happening for a Ric Flair match. Meltzer would even write, 
This is the single worst pay-per-view match Flair has ever been in. So they're doing a match where the presidency of the company is at stake and it's a mid card match. Christy Wolf in close-ups is the weirdest looking female in, in the business. This side of Nicole Bass, as bad as it was, it had by far the most heat of any match on the show. The fans were, were into every slow-mo classic spot. Piper's offense looked bad, which made Flair's selling of it look like a cartoon. Arn Anderson was helping Flair. Didn't Anderson get mad at Flair and try to help Chris Benoit on Nitro six days earlier? Flair walked around with his trunks down. Flair took a slam off the top. Piper got the sleeper, but Flair got out. Anderson grabbed Piper's leg and Flair began working it. Flair hit Piper with a foreign object, but Piper kicked out. Flair had the figure four on and was holding onto Anderson's hand, so Piper couldn't turn. When Bagwell did a run in decking Anderson and pounding on Flair and the ref DQ'd Piper for Bagwell helping out Piper then decked Bagwell and with Flair and Anderson holding Bagwell down Piper whipped him with a belt Piper again whipped Bagwell with a belt after the match. And I believe this is Piper's first heel turn since his face turn in 86 in a city like Baltimore. It was amazing to see just how little they cared about it. Dud. You watched it for the first time in a long time. What'd you think? Oh, first, let me comment on the comments. Um, hoping that our listeners, knowing as smart as they are and how they're being able to now sift through the Dave Meltzer nonsense, can can hear the irony that I just heard where, you know, he starts out, oh, the match was horrible. It's a mid-card match. Well, uh, I, I'm sorry. You know, we had Sting in a match and then we had, um, you know, a tag team, a world title tag team match, and we had a world title match. Where where should it have been placed on the card? Should it have been the main event, Davey, and become more important than the world title? Would that make sense? You know, so, I mean, again, it's a shot. You know, it's a mid-card match with Ric Flair and Roddy Piper. That is a shot, number one. Number two, the irony in what you read that that Knucklehead wrote is that, he went on to say how horrible it was, what it was slow motion, but it had the most heat on any match on the card, and the fans were hanging on to every slow motion move. Am I the only one that sees the irony in that presentation or perspective? No. I hope not. I hope not. You fucking clown. That being said, what a weird finish. <laughs> it's so weird. It didn't make any sense when at my household everybody was like, huh? When we watched it for the first time in a long time. Now, if you go back, you know, to the beginning of the pay-per-view, if you're going to watch it, you know, after the hack of uh, Knobs match, Roddy Piper is doing an interview backstage with Bagwell. Bagwell's kind of sucking up to Roddy Piper. This is like the closest thing to a storyline thread that I think you'll hear me talk about here. But, you know, this was actually in, in a very awkward and mostly ineffective way it was they at least attempted to set it up go back and look at that interview i don't have the time code on it i don't think i do maybe i have it written down nope i don't but it took place after the the hack um knobs match piper's backstage and he's i think he's talking might have been mean gene he's talking to somebody and then bagwell comes in and he's just sucking up to roddy and Roddy's, you know, Roddy's reeling him in. Roddy's reacting to Bagwell like, okay, kid, yeah, man, I'm glad you're there to support me. And then as Bagwell, in his enthusiasm, because he feels like he's synced up now with Roddy, Bagwell exits stage left. Roddy exits stage right, and under his breath he says, kids, 
I love them. I love them for breakfast. I love them for lunch. I love them for dinner. It was a very, very cool response by Piper. But you knew right then that Piper had no respect for Bagwell. And he was sucking him in. So he used Bagwell. Bagwell came in and did his dirty work. And then he followed through on the position that he took earlier on the show. That I mean, that was that's like the closest thing to an actual thread that existed in this match. Now, in fairness, I don't know what the storyline going forward was. So perhaps as awkward and unsatisfying and weird as this finish was, perhaps I'm going to give everybody a little bit of credit, you know, benefit of the doubt. Perhaps this was the beginning of a story and not the end of a story, which makes no sense to me, quite frankly, because pay-per-views, for the most part, should either be the advancement of an existing story or the end of one, mostly the end of one, particularly as you get towards the end of the card. But this was just, I was trying to figure out where in the fuck are they going with this? This is the weirdest finish I've ever seen. The reaction between, you know, the, the, you know, between Flair and, and Piper and Arn, it was just kind of like weird. It didn't really, there was no follow-up. It was just, it was weird. It's the only thing I can say. Next up, we've got Rick Steiner taking on Sting in a false count anywhere match. And Meltzer would call it another nothing match. They go 10 minutes and 35 seconds. And Dave would say these guys had no chemistry against each other, but quote, then again, they don't have any chemistry against anyone else either. Man. Whoa. See that? Got to get that shot in. Got to be funny. Got to get that little dig in. Yeah. Sting had, it's amazing to me that, you know, that Sting didn't talk to Dave on a regular basis. Sting really should have retired right after this match. If Dave was right, Sting didn't have any chemistry with anybody. He was horrible. Uh, this is directly from the observer. When they went backstage, the crowd was majorly PO'd and this killed the show backstage. We saw tank Abbott with a towel choking sting when some dogs attacked sting with Scott back there as well. It was actually not sting being attacked, but the dogs were attacking a trainer dressed up like sting. The cameras quickly cut away. Rick and Scott came to the ring with ref Mickey J intimidating him and ordering him to raise, uh, raise his hand. Saying Sting was pinned backstage. He did. And then Scott attacked him and threw him out of the ring. And then he grabbed the house mic and said, WCW sucks. Nobody was arguing with him. Rick said that Baltimore was the shittiest town in America. And he said, I think he meant to say bash was the shittiest show in America. Got to get that in, huh? Dave got to get that in. You piece of shit. And I can't at, wait to see him again at the end of the show, a graphic read that no animals were harmed in the production of this show. Dave asked, what about all the humans who had to watch this negative one star? What'd you think of, uh, the silliness of, Hey, let's bring sting backstage and let some dogs attack him. I liked it. Did you see it? Have you gone back and look at it? Yeah. I watched it. I liked, I, did you like it? No, I did. I thought it looked believable. I thought for what it was, I mean, it, it was over the top, but it was aggressive and it was believable. So I like it. I think what I didn't like is I would have preferred it. You know, let's just wrestle in the ring. Yeah, but here, here, and I get that. And I'm, I probably agree with you more on that than not. Um, I've, you know, I like to use backstage elements to further a story that eventually 
finishes up and takes place in the ring. I like my action in the ring. I don't even like my action down on the floor. You know, when, when, when I was producing wrestling, um, I tried to encourage as best I could to keep the action in the ring. Because once it gets down on the floor or it gets backstage or it goes into the concession stand or whatever, it gets sloppy. It doesn't look as good. You know, backstage fights and altercations very rarely really look that good because they're awkward. The floors are slippery. You don't have the ropes to work off of. You know, you, all, all you're basically doing is, you know, punching and kicking. And that doesn't necessarily represent the product as, as in my opinion, it, it should, unless you're doing it in very short little clips. So I, I agree with you for the most part. But if you want to escalate the tension, you know, if you go again, go back in your as you're watching this pay-per-view, if, if you're listening to the show, you go back and listen to it. You know, they kept talking about the dog pound, the dog pound, the dog pound. That was their gimmick for the Steiner brothers. So it kind of fits. And by the way, if you want to pull a stunt like this, which was pretty intense and believable and well produced, in my opinion, uh, for what it was, you're not going to do that in front of a live audience. You're not going to have two Dobermans and a fucking Rottweiler, you know, attacking people out in front of an audience of eight or 9,000 people because things can go wrong there. So it's, it, it's required to happen backstage. But you can't have all of your story take place in the ring because then that becomes boring. You do have to mix it up. As much as I agree with you, I like the majority of it in the ring. Sometimes when you need to turn up the volume, when you need to raise the stakes, when you need to shock people, sometimes you need to do it in an environment that people don't expect. I, uh, when you were talking about getting your action on the floor, I really thought you were about to start pitching blue chew. I'm thankful that you didn't. No, the floor is very uncomfortable. Too hard. Uh, well, there's another transition for blue chew. Let's, <laughs> let's move it on. Uh, move know, on, move on brother. I, uh, I thought this was sort of weird, especially when Rick Steiner said Baltimore is the shittiest town in America. Uh, it is what it is. Next up, we've got diamond Dallas page and Chris Canyon. They're going to win the tag titles from Chris Benoit and Perry Saturn. And, um, Meltzer would say there's actually a long involved story to this match. The June 7th match where Saturn replaced flair and teamed with Benoit to beat Page and Bigelow to apparently win the tag titles was overruled. And if you hadn't figured it out, Kevin Nash is only booking his own program and helping out one or two other programs, even though he is head booker. Dusty Rhodes is now handling the lion's share of the booking for the best rest of the wrestlers, including this program. So Dusty wanted to send some people home thinking a title change had happened, but then tell them on television that it didn't really happen. And Thursday was supposed to be Flair versus Benoit in a grudge lumberjack match. But WCW forgot to tell Flair he was booked and it was so incredibly stupid because Jason Hervey was in Charlotte at the request of management and they gave Flair off Thursday because they were producing a Flair home video for Trimark, but never informed the people writing the show about Flair having the day off or some sort of type of typical WCW miscommunication. Anyway, well, they panicked since Flair wasn't there at six. So they called him and told him to get to Syracuse. At a cost of thousands of dollars, they chartered a flight from Charlotte to Syracuse to get Flair to Thunder, but due to weather problems, it couldn't get off the ground until seven. And the show was put together with the idea that Flair would do several interviews building to the Benoit match. And it was supposed to be a show built around Flair versus Benoit. So virtually the entire Thunder show was filling time. And by the time Flair finally arrived at five till 10, they'd already changed the plans for the show because the show had to be off at 10 Oh three. 
because TBS to create the chimp movie had to start on time. So as a panic move, the decision was made to turn Saturn and Canyon singles match and build it into a tag match. But Bam Bam Bigelow wasn't there because he was hospitalized with a back problem. So Canyon defended the title with page with zero explanation given to have this match make sense. And in fact, it wasn't even announced as a title match until about a minute left in the match. The title change to Benoit and Saturn was planned all along for this pay-per-view with it going back to the next pay-per-view and they needed something for thunder. So they moved the storylines ahead with the tag title change for Benoit and Saturn on thunder and then change back on this show. Oh, and when Flair got there, rather than do his match with Benoit for next week's thunder or have him do an interview or a dark match for the live crowd, they just told him that he wasn't needed and he could go back home right now. Whew. What do you think of this? Uh, what do you make of this backstory of we need flair always oh, here, but we can't use him. Just go home. You know, I, I know, and I get the, you know, I get, I get the messages, you know, from Twitter followers and so forth. People don't like it one more constant when I'm constantly bashing Meltzer. I get that. Unfortunately, you keep bringing this kind of shit up, which forces me to. And I'm 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 not going to do it here because there there is so much. I mean, you talk about uh, you know emptying a, a dump truck full of bullshit. That's what this is. And for me to try to comment on it or to try to counter some of those claims is going to come off as me bitching about Dave Meltzer. So I'm going to let this one slide because there's so much nonsense in it. It's almost impossible for me to react to. Well, let's talk about the actual match. It got three and a quarter stars. Uh, of course, you know, there's going to be diamond cutters involved. Uh, Bigelow and page do a double team diamond cutter on Benoit and page puts Canyon on top for the pin. And in the ring, they attack Malenko after the match and uh, do a double team diamond cutter on a tag belt on him as well. Probably the best match on the show. What'd you think? Um, I disagree with the best match on the show. I, I really do think, um, the, uh, Kurt Hannig, uh, tag team match was a better one for a lot of reasons. Um, but it was a good match. It was a, you know, better than good. I won't call it great, but it was better than good. Uh, the only reason it's not great is because Canyon just wasn't that over as a performer. So I think the star, star power, and neither was Perry Saturn at the time. They were, they were, they were, they were solid. You know, they were solid middle, upper middle of the card guys uh, off and on. But they didn't have that kind of star power that I think this match probably needed uh, to, to satisfy the broader audience, not just the, you know, dirt sheet writers of the world, but it was a good match better than good. It, 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 you know, I don't know what else to say about it. It, it was a good match. Let's get to the next uh, match. It's our main event. Kevin Nash is going to retain the world title, beating Randy Savage by DQ in seven and a half minutes. Uh, it sort of is what it is. Um, Nash is going to come back with snake eyes, a high kick and a power bomb. And then Medusa is going to interfere kicking Nash. And that gets your DQ. Nash is then going to slam miss madness off the top rope and throw gorgeous George in a skimpy top over his back. And then there was, a, I mean, if you go back and watch this now, I didn't time code it, but there was really, it was really close to some serious spillage going on when she got thrown into the ring. Talking about gorgeous George. <laughs> I just, 
Uh, you continue to surprise me every day, Eric. I don't know what to say. He Why? Well, Why? Why know. is that surprising? That feels like something I would say, not you. And uh, see, so you're rubbing you. off of me. Oh, that's a blue chew moment right yeah. there. Oh, horrible transition. He delivered the snake eyes on Miss Madness, and then Sid ran in with a high kick and a power bomb, leaving Nash laying. Uh, Melzer would say Savage looked totally out of it, leaving the ring. He was bleeding from the mouth, and his eyes looked to be somewhere else, and he needed help to get to the back. Uh, this didn't appear to be a sell, although he wasn't seriously injured either, since Nash had done nothing to him. Not in the Hogan Warrior League, but under any normal standard, completely horrible main event. Negative one star. But this is the big return of Sid, and that would be something that a lot of people were discussing and, and being critical of, including Meltzer. Uh, he would say it was desperation sinking in the WCW as well. WCW now has a locker room, which features Sid vicious, who has walked out on every contract and every company he's ever been with for his entire career. And with the big surprise edition, looked at being Kevin Nash's next world ta- world title challenger. Can someone say ultimate warrior, not to mention he was let go from the company for a hotel brawl with Arn Anderson that he precipitated which wound up with both men being seriously injured and since that time his track record has been nearly flawless and that he's walked out on every company he's worked for and set all-time records for no showing independent dates for the record on that account while it shows that anderson and flair have absolutely no power in the organization reports of anderson okaying the deal are incorrect the fact is that anderson was never discussed with about the possibility of sid coming in ahead of time And the only reason he knew before Sid arrived in Baltimore was because Randy Savage had told him when Sid arrived, Anderson was told that if he wanted to, he could have nothing to do with him. There is a saying about those who don't learn history, but in this case, desperation takes precedent over lessons learned by history and things are going to get worse before they get better. While there is lots of opposition to vicious being brought back after the way exited five years ago in the grand scheme of things, morale is so bad. This was just considered another day at the office. Actually, within WCW, there was more concern about a potential blow-up at some point with Master P, figuring that when an incompetent promotion teams up with one of the wealthiest entertainers in the world, that the resulting falling out is inevitable. Let's talk about the return of Sid. Did you, I mean, you knew the history with Arn. Did you not think you needed to give anybody a heads up? First of all, I don't agree with the premise that we didn't give everybody a heads up. So I'm not taking Dave's perspective on this at face value. Um, Do I remember sitting down and talking with everybody specifically about it or anybody? Not necessarily. Do I believe I did? Absolutely. So I'm going to reject the premise without MFing him because I'm tired of doing it. And and our listeners are tired of hearing it. I just, you know, I'm so sick of Dave's. It's so clear here. And if it's not clear to you, then, you know, let me ask. That's your, that's your choice. If it's not clear to you that this guy is so stricken with the need to force his agenda on his readers, then there's really nothing that I'm going to say that's going to make it interesting or give you a different opinion. Everything out of his mouth in his jerseys were all about burying WCW and Hogan and me and whoever. That was his agenda. And he'll take every opportunity to do it. He'll look at a match like Ric Flair and Roddy Piper and shit all over it. And then go on to say it had more heat than any other show on the card and people loved it. The fuck? If that doesn't give you a crystallized 
perspective on what this piece of garbage was all about at the mm. time and probably still is. I don't know what does, and I don't know how to respond to this stuff. Talk to me about Arn. Let's say, mm-hmm. uh, let's go with the idea that you did have a conversation with Arn, and let's go with the idea that he's a team player and he's okay with it. Now let's just for a minute say it goes the other way. You go to sit down with Arn, give him a heads up. Hey man, thinking about creative for bash at the beach. There's an opportunity to pick up a performer. Who's, uh, not really secure and his current employment with ECW. We'd like to bring Sid back. Wanted to make sure you're okay with it. What if Arn says, nah, not okay with it. No, let, let's, let's go back. You know, <laughs> Arn Anderson, I wasn't there. When that incident went down in the hotel, wherever it was, it was either Germany or the UK, I can't remember, because I wasn't there. I think it was in Germany. I got the phone call at 2 or 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning right after it happened, you know, from Doug Dillinger. First reports were Arn was just as responsible for that as Sid was. He was stirring the pot. There was nobody in this equation that was – that was guilt-free. Now, granted, you know, it, it got way out of hand, clearly, beyond just a fistfight. But neither one of them were guilt-free. So the thought that I needed to make sure that one of the two parties was okay with it, yeah, not sure I agree with that. Doesn't mean I wouldn't have had a conversation with him. But when I let, when I let Sid go, we knew that that was a temporary situation. You know, our knew he was walking on thin ice because he was, he was partially responsible for what went down. Not totally not saying he, he started it, but he certainly facilitated it based on all the reports that I had from everybody who was objective, who did see it happen. So there was nobody in that equation was guilt free. And I think if, if, if anybody accepts that premise, or, or that position that I took at that time, that nobody was guilt-free. Yeah, you, you you had to find them. You had to hurt them financially. You had to make an example out of them. But it wasn't a death sentence. So, yeah, I would have had a conversation. But believe me, I had a conversation with Arn long before that. Arn knew that he was on thin ice as a result of that event. He knew that there were a lot of people within Turner Broadcasting that wanted them both fired permanently, like forever, permanently, never come back. And yeah, I had to manage that in both of their cases, not just for SIDS, but as for Arn too. So just put the whole situation in context, not just the part of it that certain writers feel the need to jump all over to further their agenda. I guess I should mention that, uh, the very next day you guys had a situation that made some news. Meltzer would write Rena Mero's appearance on nitro on June 14th, while still under contract to the WWF raises a lot of legal questions. Mero was seated in the front row at nitro with numerous camera close-ups coming out just before 10 PM in a Kevin Nash interview. The crowd reacted big to her to the point that Nash was attempting to do his interview. And there was a huge sable chant. In addition, there was a sign that may have been a plant shown clearly on camera that said sable one Vince McMahon zero. There were numerous close-ups on her waving to the camera for the remainder of the show. She was never identified as either Sable or Rena Mero, and Eric Bischoff was the only one who really commented on her, just noting that he's seen Playboy and making cryptic comments. 
Earlier in the week on the internet, Bischoff tried to tease that she alluding to a female with blonde hair and litigation against a wrestling promoter, but never saying Sable or Rena Mero was the driver of the Humvee that ran into Nash. However, <laughs> all WCW announcers were instructed on television, not even to go so far as to tease that it may have been a woman driving the Humvee. After Sid Vicious did his run in at the pay-per-view in Baltimore, Bischoff made it a point on Nitro the next day to say that Sid wasn't the driver and that the driver appeared to have been a woman, although never teasing anything on TV that would lead viewers to believe that he meant Mrs. Miro. Other WCW personnel that evening were instructed not to reference Miro by any name. WCW is trying to say she bought a ticket to the show, but her WF contract specifically forbids her making an appearance of this type on a WCW broadcast. So of course there's a lot of legal wrangling here. There's been precedent set with you guys going back and forth through the court system. The WWF is going to send a cease and desist to her saying she can't use the name Sable and you know, they're clearly not happy. Talk to us a little bit about how this came to be, how she wound up in the front row and given all the legal shit you had to put up with why you decided to press forward with it. You know, I wasn't involved with the details of, of her showing up. She didn't contact me at this point. You know, Dusty was booking, Kevin was booking, other people were on the booking committee with them. Most of the creative that was being done was being done through them. Um, this would have been one of those cases. My guess, and it's only a guess, uh, would have been she probably came through Kevin Nash because I think that's where the relationship would have been. Could could be wrong about that, but I if I had to bet money, that's what where I'd bet it. Um, in terms of you know where we stood legally, um, you know, and and maybe Meltzer's a lawyer too. You know, maybe he knows more about the law than most people. Uh, but believe me, after what we had gone through with WWE and and the trademark and copyright you know litigation that we had gone through and all of that. We didn't do anything that we didn't run through legal first. And again, legal wasn't a part of WCW. Legal was a part of Turner Broadcasting. So something like that did get run through Turner Legal, and we were given guidelines on how we could do it and how we couldn't do it. And we worked within those guidelines. Creatively speaking, uh, a hint of desperation, no doubt about it a hint of trying to create a buzz and create some controversy, uh, knowing that it wasn't really going to pay off, you know, anytime in the near future and really didn't have anywhere to go. Listening to you kind of read it back to me. I'm kind of guessing that, you know, even the inference that it might've been a woman driving the Hummer and all that, it was kind of like improvisational. Wasn't really part of a plan, just kind of an opportunistic, Hey, what if we, what if we imply this without going too far? without stepping over the, the guidelines that we were given by legal, what if we do this just to kind of heighten the controversy and the speculation and to create a little bit of a buzz? But again, in hearing it back, it just, it sounds like kind of a Kmart blue light special kind of creative move. Cheap. Let's, uh, let's mention here that, you know, you guys are going to continue to say, oh, she bought a ticket, even though she shows up with security and it's a front row ticket. So that's not real, but I uh, know I bet. No, 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 no. And, and hearing this back, 
I'm yeah, sure you I made her I really pay for it, but you held the, t- it was a comp that you sold her. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. We knowing what was going, I'll tell you what, how I would handle it today, knowing what I know now. And I know I knew just as much by this point then as I know now at this point, if somebody would have come to me and said, look, this is what we want to do. Um, we would have had to run it through legal. I'm guessing legal would have said, make sure she buys her own ticket and keep a receipt. Yeah. Cause that, that's your out. So I, I don't know that it was all a work. Yeah. She may have had security. So did a lot of other celebrities, you know, from time to time, but I'm guessing. And I think it's a really, no, no, I'm guessing I'm betting. And I believe it's a really safe bet that she bought her own ticket and she kept her receipt. Cause that's what she was told to do. She, uh, responds to a USA Today story or any USA Today story saying that she attended the event to see if the same level of vicinity was taking place on Nitro, and it was not. Um, of course, oh, she came to the wrong show. <laughs> yeah, Jerry McDivitt on the 16th talked with WCW lawyer, uh, lawyers, easy for me to say, and threatened to file a federal lawsuit immediately. And you guys responded two days later by sending Titan a letter saying that Mero is not under contract to WCW, no contract negotiations with her are ongoing, and that she wouldn't be appearing on WCW television anymore until her contract expires in August of 2001, or she gets her release. Of course, she wasn't on Nitro on the 21st, and I guess it just uh, sort of becomes its own thing from there. Um, NBC on the 21st starts advertising her for Jay Leno's June 24th, uh, edition of the tonight show and bills her as world wrestling Federation star Sable and McDivitt would say she can sue us till the cows come home and she's not going to get the name Sable. She can make all the allegations she wants and it won't get her anywhere. And of course, as a backstory, I guess we should tell everybody she's suing for like 140 million bucks and she's got a lot of laundry list of complaints in that lawsuit, but you were definitely, uh, doing what you could. And I think, you know, in a word, if we had to sort of sum up great American bash, it was desperation. What do you say? I disagree. I disagree. It's not that we weren't, you know, struggling. That's been well-documented. You and I have talked about that. 99 was a horrible year. There were a lot of things going wrong. There were a lot of things that were imposed upon us as a result of the AOL time Warner merger, whether people that like to think they know the wrestling business agree with that or not. You know, I, I encourage anybody who's listening, who doubts anything that I say, um, go read Guy Evans' book. You don't have to take my word for it. Here, here, here is Guy Evans, who is a legitimate, unlike Dave Meltzer, a legitimate journalist who actually did the work, who actually researched it, who actually did interviews with key executive management people way above my pay grade and has probably the clearest perspective on what was going on at AOL Time Warner at that time than I did. Um, you can also, if you really want to further elucidate yourself, elucidate yourself, read Nina Monk's book, When Fools Rush In. And if you really want to be an expert instead of a dirt sheet writer, read both of those books. Read Nina Monk's book, When Fools Rush In, which I think is the definitive uh, business book about the AOL Time Warner Turner merger and how it affected everything, including WCW, and how that mismanagement took about and came about. And then read Guy Evans' book because that's specific to WCW. 
then you'll really understand whether or not I'm just making excuses for myself or being defensive or whatever. And if, if you read those books and you, you still believe that, then, you know, so be it. Hopefully you'll keep listening and you'll be entertained by the Bluetooth commercials and you'll get some really good, you know, you know, information about new products, you know, with our new sponsors. But that is a fact. It is a fact. We were in a desperate situation. No doubt about that. The show, I think, doesn't deserve that handle. I think the show, with the exception of a few matches that we've we've covered here, I thought the show was a great show. And by the way, go back and watch it. So did the audience. But I understand how certain people want to feel like they know more than the audience because that's how they make a living. But the audience loved it. Check out the crowd reaction. You tell me at the end of that match, at the end of that main event, you tell me how horrible it was in the eyes of the people that actually bought a ticket. And then we'll have a conversation. But I don't think the show is desperate. Well, I'm excited to be a part of next week's broadcast because we're going to get in our Wayback Machine. We've talked about 97, 98, 99 a lot lately. We're going to go back five years to June 23rd, 1994 to Charleston, South Carolina. And in the main event of that show, it'll be Ric Flair, who's your WCW World Heavyweight Champion. He's going to be taking on Sting, who is your WCW International World Heavyweight Champion. And we're going to unify those belts in a 17-minute match. We've also got Johnny B. Bad working with Steve Austin. Steve Austin's coming into this as your United States Champion. We're going to have Larry Zabisco defending his World Television Championship against Lord Steven Regal. We'll have Tex Slazinger, who we know is going to become one of the Godwins, taking on the Guardian Angel, who we know was the big boss man. And then for the tag titles, we've got the Nasty Boys challenging Cactus Jack and Kevin Sullivan. This is an underrated era for the company. You look up and down this card, there's just so much talent, so many Hall of Famers, but WCW's in a bit of uh, a dip. Now, Hulk Hogan's going to pull him out in just a couple of weeks after this when he takes on Ric Flair at Bash at the Beach, and they never look back. WCW is on an upward trend from then on, but this is sort of the last major show before that happens. It might be the end of an era, but it was a super fun era with lots of talent. Uh, we hope you watch Clash of the Champions 27 with us and uh, and check it out next week. I'm looking forward to it. Until then, uh, we need, we want you to you know, click that subscribe button, leave us a review, follow us on Twitter at 83 weeks, follow us on Twitter at 83 weeks. He is at a e. Bischoff. I am at, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. And we are out of time. We'll see you next week. When we get back in our way back machine to June 23rd, 1994 for clash of the champions, 27 right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round together. It's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on a sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.